What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Don't Give Up the Ship Podcast. This is episode 82. Uh, and today I'm talking to a nuclear electrician on submarines. Um, he's an EMN2 that was interested in coming on and talking about a bunch of issues about his experience uh, in the training pipeline and beyond. And so we got into a lot of that, um, kind of inspired by the trick episode. He listened to that and has been listening to some of the episodes for a while and wanted to come on and kind of discuss some of those issues. And so uh, we did that and it was fun. Uh, it, I enjoy getting to talk to different people, but um, this is one of the first times I've gotten to have someone um, as junior as him uh, on the podcast. And so it was exciting to do and I hope to be able to do more of them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, we, we went through a lot of different things and a lot of it was driven by his experience and the stories he told uh, based on that. So um, I got a lot out of it. I thought it was really productive and I hope you do too. check it out. Uh, so yeah, man, let's just start with the, so we'll start with the introduction. So just give me like your background and as much detail as you want to, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Um, uh, EMN2 on, uh, submarines. So nuke electrician, uh, coming up on my eight year point in a couple months here, but, um, pretty much on my basically third submarine platform and about five years of being in the fleet. So, oh, wow. How, how did the bouncing around happen? Or is that the detailing stuff that we're going to get to later? That's that's part of the detailing stuff okay. later. We'll, we'll uh, wait just, then. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, just needing to like stay in Virginia for like family stuff. But Gotcha. Um, so I pretty much just wanted to talk more about like uh, basically like where nukes come from, kind of like um, how the pipeline goes and, you know, basic day-to-day life on the boat and like why are i mean everybody knows you know why are nukes so bitter <laughs> that's gonna, about everything but that's gonna be like the, the name of the ep- the name of the episode is gonna be why are nukes so angry yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm writing it down right now i was wondering that's, i was like something will come up during the episode but it's gonna be that yeah no i i don't want to touch on you know the nuclear side of stuff because like obviously the job sucks it's just more like the the leadership and yeah. it can very easily be much better than it is. It's just a right. cycle that we're stuck in that a lot of people don't understand. Did you, uh, just for my own curiosity, did you come in planning to be a nuke? No, not at all. So what was, what was the plan at the beginning? Um, so originally I, I didn't want to do college. Uh, mm. and I didn't want to put either myself or my parents into that kind of debt. And yeah. I didn't really have a real plan for what I was going to do in life, but my big hobby, you know, outside of work, even now is working on trucks and mostly like diesels. So you're not a nerd. You said earlier, you're a big nerd and it's like a pre, I mean, you can be both, but I'm just saying still a little bit of a nerd, but (laughs) wrenching on trucks is pretty not nerdy, but you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just like, uh, I like tinkering with engines, you know, just, uh, I have a big interest in how stuff works. So yeah, I originally went and talked to the army about being a diesel mechanic. Mm. Just kind of drove out there after class in high school one day and um, talked to the army recruiter and told him I want to be a diesel mechanic. And he was like, all right, sweet. Like you're need a 35 on the ASVAB to get that job. So I'm thinking like, Oh, 35, like you're trusted. Oh, that must on the, be hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you're, <laughs> you're going to be trusted, like keeping the Humvees running, you know, yeah. maintaining all this equipment. So that's going to be out of like 50 or something. He's like, no, it's out of 99. Oh man. Okay. That changes my perspective. So took the practice as and 
got a decently high score on that. And then kind of figured, you know, if I could have a lot more job opportunity in the military, I might want to look at something else. Yeah. So I went back to my high school and I talked to the guy that was in charge of the JROTC program who was a, a prior enlisted, you know, got commissioned, retired as a lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Kind of talked to him about all the stuff he saw in the Navy. And he basically told me, if you're good at math and you like money, you should go be a nuke. <laughs> I was like, all right, sounds easy enough. He told me they make, you know, good bonuses and stuff. And, you know, to a high schooler, you're just basically saying like, yeah. Yo, if you can do math and you like money, like go for it. Okay. Yeah. So I walked into the Navy recruiter office a couple of days later and, you know, walked in. They're like, "Hey, how can we help you?" Like, oh, I want to be a nuke, and they all jumped up. Oh yeah, been a huge they, red flag. But <laughs> they're like, like Yahtzee. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh man, because I so I did a bunch of stuff with career recruiters, um, and in one of my shore duties, like we would do the chief season with them, and um, so we just like I became friends with some of them, like, but I got familiar enough with the recruiting world that I know exactly how the reaction would go. Oh yeah. It's just like, that's like the Holy grail. You're like, you're a unicorn, like somebody that walks in and they don't even got to sell them on it. Like, yeah, there was three or four recruiters that were all, you know, tell me like, Hey, come, come sit down at my desk. Like we'll get this started. And then (laughs) I just went to the guy closest to the door. Like the guy was right there in front of me. But, um, so I went to MEPS, did the actual ASVAB, got all that stuff going. And then the worst part that I kind of kicked myself for now is that while they were processing my contract, they didn't have an available nuke billet, I guess, for okay. that cycle or something. Oh, that's weird. So they they told me they were going to have to re-rate me to some, like, weapons technology. Shut I don't remember up. the rate they said. You know, that's like, yeah, you insane. can do this. Like, they make rank just as fast as nukes. Like, it's, you know, an equal career progression and all this but whoever did that should get fired i can't believe they don't just have like a special (laughs) thing where they're like yeah whatever we'll just pull a quota from three months from now get them in as a nuke yeah they told me you know you take this contract go to boot camp and then you can you'll be a nuke there but being like a spiteful high schooler and thinking i was like sticking it to the man or something Uh, i was like no i'm i'm not leaving here until i sign a nuke contract so i i I sat at meps for like eight hours that day so just to (laughs) recap you walked into a recruiting office, told them you want to be a nuke without being sold on it at all. And then you had to like argue with them about it. Like that yeah. sounds like you made this <laughs> shit up, man. Like no, this is like, I've n- I can't imagine a recruiter, not just like jumping through all of the flaming hoops to make you a nuke, no matter what. And you not have, you know what I mean? Like you not having to convince them of anything. Surprised they weren't like fanning you and feeding you grapes. <laughs> Yeah, they had the uh, the like main nuke representative at Meps who was wow. you know fighting to get the contract, but yeah, it basically That's came down to like so crazy. you know you take this rate and then you get to boot camp and you'll be a nuke, which is pretty much the exact opposite of what you usually hear for nukes, where they yeah. get told like take a nuke contract go to boot camp and then you can be a seal or then you can oh, be whatever. Yeah, and that's not even a little true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, wow. Um. So that that whole process was interesting enough yeah uh added probably three or four months to my time on depth like i was waiting to go in the navy for almost a year but yeah went off to boot camp which was you know easy enough nothing surprising there and then the pipeline is where stuff really was like the culture shock a lot of people know about you know the nuke pipeline but 
Um, I guess that's where the the main points start about yeah. how broken the nuclear world of the Navy is. Yeah, and, I'm interested to hear about it, and like we'll talk about the the bigger reason. There's a coincidental reason why, like I, I'm super interested in hearing your perspective on this, and I'll tell you after we're done recording because it's like some stuff I don't necessarily want to put out on the podcast, but. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to probably communicate some of this to to somebody if you're cool with it. But go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, that's fine with me. Um, the I think the main thing in the pipeline, other than you're basically from the start, you know, you get put in a class uh, straight out of boot camp. You're still pretty military bearing focused, but they basically tell you how things are going to work. You get your class started maybe a day or two of, you know, this is where you go for this, um, Mm -hmm. making sure everything's good to go. And then that first week you're doing like high school math on steroids. It's just, if you haven't done calculus before, like you're, you're going to do it whether you want to or not. And you Mm -hmm. have a couple days to learn it and then take a test. Wow. And that's just kind of how they start you off. So wasn't, surprise there because like i said the uh jrotc head that i talked to told me that you need to be good at math and i was i was decent at math in high school but i never did calculus so i just kind of made that work and then for the electrician side of the pipeline that's when you start diving into electrical theory which i had no prior experience of right so it's just i think a couple weeks to maybe the longer courses are about a month but you're just rotating a course every couple of weeks. You're getting yeah, I, insane so, amounts of knowledge pushed yeah, into you I and always, then take a test. I always kind of wondered why. So like when you're there for two years, approximately, is that is that accurate? Like the whole pipeline, obviously, you're in different schools over that time. But yeah, with that much time and training and preparation to go do the job. And I know some of that is like prototype where you guys are on an actual like training platform learning how to stand watch and qualifying the watches and whatever but like why does the school have to be so uh accelerated like if it's that long and and again i know all of that time is not devoted to classroom like theory and math and whatever but like what why do you think that it's so consolidated like that and it feels so rushed so as far as um and then ptc in South Carolina, the schoolhouse mm-hmm. portion of it. Yeah. I think that is as condensed as it is because there is a lot of information that you're expected to even maintain throughout the fleet. Like it, it's yeah. not weird when you, you ask a question and somebody comes back at you with, well, you should have learned that in a school and then they don't help at all. And like, thanks dude. <laughs> but, um, a school and power school is just a school is mostly rate specific power school. You learn, how the reactor works and all the supporting systems. Right. And then, like you said, you go to prototype and you're actually learning how to stand watch on an operational plant. And so how and long is each one generally? They're all supposed to be about six months. Okay. But then you have hold periods or once you get to prototype, you know, the, like when I went through a couple of years ago, the, the plants are getting older we have the new prototypes rotating down there now to South Carolina, but mm-hmm. every now and then you get two or three weeks where, you know, something major breaks and you're just kind of sitting in the classroom area, 
not able to make progress on your quals if you're plant limited, but you're still getting told, you know, hey, you're slightly behind, so you got to do your your dink study hours. You got to be here for two <laughs> extra hours a day or whatever. Oh wow! So, so is it? So if let's say, for instance, like just make up a an example um, scenario. So like you're in the pipeline, you're at the prototype stage, you are plant limited because something broke, and you're like two signatures behind on a qual you can't do anything about because you're plant limited. They're going to make you do ding study for that entire time until the, the oh, yeah. plant's fixed. That was, I mean, that was my experience at least. Uh, What's was, the logic there or is there any, uh, I, I guess the only thing make I can think of that, uh, a lot of people kind of come to the same conclusion that, you know, if you're not keeping up with your quals or on the curve or ahead of it, that's obviously a, optional failure on your part uh being a very hands-on learner a school and power school is pretty tough for me and then getting to prototype it's still a lot of checkout kind of uh qualifying so i i yeah. love you know the standing watch part of it because you feel like you're actually doing your job but as far as going into right. a, a cubicle with a whiteboard and trying to show some c returnee how much you know about his own system like that stuff didn't yeah. go too well for me so when I got plant <laughs> limited and the prototypes up in New York went down for, I want to say it was about a month while I was there. You know, there was a month I'm sitting there doing 14 hour days at work mm. and just waiting to go observe a, an evolution on a critical plant when it can't go critical. Like that's brutal. I it's it's because I can't good imagine there's any education. Yeah, I can't imagine there's any educational model where a 14-hour day like that may like is productive in any way. And I I understand I understand like, yeah, you know, studying's important. And I'm like a I'm the opposite where like not that I need the hands-on portion, but it's like I need to understand it academically first. So like when I was qualifying like chief watch and dive, it was like I need to sit there and study the book first. And then I want I, it helps me to like so I understand it in a book, I think. I, I go watch somebody do it. Like, I don't want to, I, people will throw you in the chair and just be like, figure it out, nerd. And it's like, I, that doesn't, I, I, all I do is shut down. Like I get overwhelmed and my brain yeah. shuts off and then I'm, I'm lost. But like, if I stand behind somebody, watch them do it. And then I get to ask a few questions. And I'm like, all right, I think I can sit down now. And then I, I fumble through it and figure it out, like take a couple lumps and then I figure it out and then I'm good. But it's like, if you just try to throw me in the chair, it's like, dude, I don't, I don't understand what's happening. Even if I could figure out how to do it. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I remember when I went back to a BN after being only on fast boats, I qualified chief of the watch for the first time on a, a Seawolf boat and then went to a BN and was like requalifying. And they like blazed my whole card off. I'm like, dude, I don't know anything about this boat. And it's like so yeah. different, like so different. And so like I had touch screens and stuff like I don't what is, I'm like, this is all analog. And it's totally different, like the different number of auxiliary tanks, different number of the like all the load management stuff's different. Everything's different. The procedures are different. Valve numbers, everything. And they were just, oh, you were qualified on that boat? Oh, okay. And they just blazed my whole card off. So I remember the first few, and I actually caused a critique after my first watch, kind of. It's a long story, but um, the <laughs> I, I got a bad order and then questioned it like five times and everybody, every opportunity to intervene and help me failed because I was like, I asked the question, like I challenged the order because it sounded messed up and I, I challenged it to like two, diff two different people, one of which was the dive who is my direct supervisor, obviously. 
And they both like one of them ignored me. And then the dive just said, no, you're good. And ordered me to do it again. And I'm like, okay. And I like started bringing a mask down. I wasn't supposed to. And everybody freaked out. Um, but it like they put me in the chair and I like, I didn't really understand what was going on. Like had I understood that system better, having had the time to like requalify the right way. Cause once they figure everybody signed it and then they knew where I was at and then they're like, go get an interview. And I kind of, I allowed myself to get rushed through it, which I shouldn't have, but um, they put me in the chair way too early and I was not ready. And we were getting ready to dive the ship. And I'm like, I'm the last guy that should be up here for this. And I just didn't have any experience on that platform. It was my first qualified watch back on a submarine and in forever. And like, it was just a dumpster fire, but yeah, it's like I need the I need the academic time and then I need to like watch somebody smart do it. And so I can see how it's actually supposed to be done. And then I'm like, OK, I think I can sit down now. And they skipped all those steps and just like blazed my card off and threw me in the chair. And it was not good. Well, I think I think that is one good thing that the at least the prototype up in New York had was a uh, mm. fake maneuvering in the training area that. OK you know, just fake panels that didn't do anything. They weren't yeah. connected to anything, but you go in there with sea returnees and learn how to shift the electric plant. And it's kind of hard when you, you know, you're first going through the pipeline, you have no idea when they're like, what indications do you expect? Like, Man, right. I don't know. I, don't I even know, know what I'm looking at, but yeah, <laughs> once you stand watch on the plant and then you go back and they end up getting the, the students that are about to graduate, they'll end up sending some of those guys in with students that are just showing up. Yeah. And that stuff is really helpful because then you kind of get that muscle memory and yeah. you, know, you remember, even if it's a, a senior student there, once you're on the plant, you go to touch a breaker and then you just have this like flashback in your head of like, man, some guy yelled at me about this once. Why was that? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that's cool. I like that idea that like, because I feel like staff will be more apt to like yell at you or snap at you or be short with you or tell you you should have learned it in a school like you mentioned earlier. Whereas a student who has been where they are more recently will remember um, yeah. like what it's like to be sitting there and freaking out and not know anything. But also like the thing that gets me about like I, I hear that a lot, especially about the nuclear training pipeline as far as like the, how the instructors seem like abrasive and short with students. And I like I don't know if that's a cultural thing or like a, and I don't mean like just nuclear culture in general. I just mean like at that training command, if that's like how like how they're taught when they come in is that they're supposed to be like that. Which I find hard to believe, but maybe. Um, oh, no, I think if it's, it's entirely just nukes being nukes. Yeah, and, and that's what it seems more like. I've watched, and they're not bad people, man, but like I've seen so many smart nukes just eat their young. And it's like, that's how do you think that's productive? And if you're, especially like if it happened to you and you hated it when it was happening, why are you now doing it to all your new people? Like, I, it just never. It never makes sense for as common as it is. You know what I mean? Like I, I just see all these smart people doing dumb things and I'm, it just hurts my head to watch because it's like that one of the reasons nuke retention is so low is because you eat your young, you know, and it's like, it yeah. doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. I think for, I mean, as far as submarines go, I think one yeah. of the big reasons is that like, let's say you're a, a sea returning at prototype and mm -hmm. you know, never been a prototype instructor. So you know, probably might be misspeaking about something, but you're getting told to go teach these kids how to shift the electric plant. Mm -hmm. So on your boat, if you're shifting to some form of shore power lineup, because you're 
pulling back into home port after an underway. Like mm-hmm. you want some guy on the panel doing the shutdown and shifting the shore power. That's going to, you know, get the shutdown started sooner. You can go home sooner, hopefully. But yeah, so you kind of get into that habit and then you go back through the pipeline teaching kids that are seeing the electric plant for like the second time in their whole life. Yeah. And they, they're nervous and they go to, you know, shift whatever breaker and, Oh, I don't know. Petty officer. Like, I think I'm meeting my requirements to operate this. And Mm -hmm. so you just kind of snap because yeah, you have that mental habit of like, why are you not getting this done? Yeah. And that's, I, I, I guess I get that, but I don't know, man. Like, I feel like part of it is probably what, cause I've seen it so many different places that I'm starting to think that it's a lot more common where people just adapt to their surroundings. So it's like, cause I had a really good EDMC on my last boat. Like, uh, I'll tell you his name when we're offline, but like this dude, one of the smartest human beings I've ever met in my life. And, and also, I mean that like in every way you can think of, like, like his brain was a computer, but also he like really witty, smart, personable, like got along really well with everybody. Funniest jokes in the chief's quarters. Like, and he was all, he was able to be a really empathetic people person too. It was crazy. Like he, uh, one of the his primary thought process through everything when we were sitting in planning meetings, ops briefs, whatever, was like people first. Like it was like, how how can I get my nukes the most sleep? How can I get them the most time off? How can I make this thing that's going to suck, suck the least? And it was, I, I mean, when that dude transferred, they probably threw freaking rose petals at his feet. He was just that type of a dude. Really, really great at his job. And like, I'm two above average horses in a row. Like, so he was that guy too. He was a monster. And that was one of the things that I saw with his chiefs was, and this is the whole point I was getting to is like people adapt to their surroundings is like when they had that EDMC, they adapted to him and his way of doing things. And so then those chiefs that the division chiefs then started thinking that way and like taking like fiercely defending their sleep and, and quality of life of their divisions. And so it's weird because it's like, I don't think it's normally like that, but when you when I communicate all that, you're probably sitting there thinking like he's probably exaggerating or misperceiving or whatever. But it's like these things are actually possible when the right leader is in the right place that has the experience and, and outlook and, and just like the skill set to be able to create that type of an environment. And once they're in that position and they create that environment, everybody else just adapts because they're the leader, like they're the the alpha in this like pack right it's probably a bad analogy it sounds corny as i'm saying it but the you know what i mean like they look at yeah. the edmc and they follow the edmc to set the culture in the engine room and everyone they just adapt to them and you see them stop doing some of those things like it didn't entirely go away like i that, this same department is where i saw some of the like lpos and stuff eating their young um but that actively got addressed by the, the chief's quarters as well because the the one of the guys I'm thinking of, uh, like I remember having conversations, I was involved in the conversations, which means it was coming up at the appropriate level and we were sitting there talking about it. And I talked to that division chief a lot because he had a really hard time with that LPO and he was trying to fix the culture of the division. But um, yeah, it, I see that a lot and on bad boats too, right? Where it's like bad boats, bad divisions, bad departments, whatever. It's it's You look at the person that should be setting the tone in that way, whether it's like the CO, CMC, or like if you look at a division and you're looking at just that chief, it's like people are adapting to the person that is responsible for for creating the culture within whatever like subset we're talking about. 
And it's, it's that simple. It's like, you could see somebody be a, a, a better, like more empathetic people, person type leader that's doing all the soft skills, things correctly in a different space with a different leader. And then when you insert them into the ecosystem of that command with those leaders, you see them start to adapt to their behavior where it's like, if they had better leadership, like uh, all the way up the chain of command, you, you, you'll see people kind of like rise to the occasion. And I was warned, like when I came to a BN, uh, one of my other EDMCs who was also incredible, um, he told me, he's like, Hey, you're going to need to learn to adapt to this concept of, uh, cause I was on a projects boat. And so like the people that were there were all like type a, like they all volunteered to be there. They were all the type of people that you would think would be like leading the way on any other submarine in the fleet. And, but they were all collected in the same space. So it's like, there wasn't a lot of, um, there wasn't a lot of people not carrying their water. You know what I mean? Like they were, there was, it was yeah. like chief university there. It was the best possible place to make chief. And I think a lot of it is that's why I'm wired the way I'm wired. But he said, you're going to go to a BN and it's like, there's a lot of people that it, it when there's not outside stimulus, they're going to operate at the lowest power output possible. Like they're, they're going to re- like immediately regress to the lowest level of output that you will allow So it's like, you have to not allow them to do that. And I was just like, interesting. And it was kind of that, it kind of made me pay closer attention to that. And he wasn't wrong. And it's like, it's the type of thing where it's like, if you're, if there isn't that, that type of a leader that's creating that stimulus, it's like people around, it's like, if they're allowed to just sit there and exist or, or adapt to the the lowest level of output output possible being like the cultural norm, they're going to do that. A lot of the times, there's not a lot of people that no matter where you put them, they're going to operate at the same level, no matter what. They exist. And I, I count myself among them because I'm usually the, I'll be the crazy person in the room going, what are you guys doing? Like freaking out that no one is like meeting the norms that I'm used to or whatever. Um, and so like I have a reputation with some people of being a pain in the ass. But um, but yeah, man, I like I think it long short story long it's it's uh i think people just adapt to what's happening around them like what cultural norms are set and where the bar is set by the leadership that's supposed to be doing those things well yeah and that and that kind of comes back to i mean there are points you've made on previous podcasts about higher leadership and like where their mindset is at and the two big things is like they're focused on the overall mission and not necessarily what's going on you know even though they should be focused but they're not focused on what's going on on the deck plate all the time and then also remembering where they came from as far as you know the cheats quarters goes yeah you're talking about having a strong edmc that i don't understand why that's not the normal because these guys were baby nukes getting eaten alive by senior dudes at some point and then I'm sure right. more than a handful of them had some form of either toxic leadership or weak leadership and felt that pain. So once they get to that point and, you know, optionally qualify EDMC and then take that billet, like, why would you not go back into the fleet thinking like, man, that that sucked when I did it, you know, this way? Yeah, I I. And I always err on the side of caution with the criticism piece because so it's 
what I what I am sure of up until very recently is those people were not provided leadership development and education unless they happened upon a great mentor. And so I can tell you, my last EDMC in many, many ways, like, yeah, everybody's got like faults, obviously, including me, but he had a few. But I mean, I'm telling you, this guy was complete. Like he was a complete leader. He didn't have a lot of glaring weaknesses. The one, bef- the the other guy that I'm talking about before that, like, I love this man death. And he, again, like he's one of the smartest human beings I've ever met. And ironically, he was my most recent EDMC's chief at one point. So they were very similar in a lot of ways. But the, the, the EDMC, when I was a young chief, I, I love him. He's great. And he was incredible at his job, but he was very, um, he was very much like atypical nuke in a lot of ways as well. Like where, um, he would bulldo- He would try to bulldoze me all the time. Like he would just, we would store trash in the engine room, and like I'd come out, and one day, like like a whole bunch of engineering department people are just moving trash forward and leaving it in the P way, and I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, ah, they said we got to get it out of the engine room because we got to clean the engine room. I'm like, yeah, but why? And why that? Why did no one talk to me about this? And like, why? And then I'm like in the P way arguing with him, like, what the? What is wrong with you? Why didn't you just talk to me? You know what I mean? And like, he's just the kind of guy that like. He was a giant pain and he was very like confrontational and he didn't really have he didn't really have a bedside manner. Right. But he was like he it was kind of like he could be a jerk, but he was my jerk. You know what I mean? He was like a guy I definitely wanted on my team. And when I needed him, he was always there for me. He would always he would he would waterboard somebody to get an answer or to get what he needed. Like not literally for anyone that's listening, but like he's just he was this type of dude that. Like, I love him to death to this day. He's a good friend of mine. But like one of the things that I would point at and be like, yeah, that could have been better, you know, is like, is that piece of it is like, I don't know. And I'm not qualified to evaluate his like how he took care of the engineering department. I I feel like he was pretty well liked as the EDMC. I just think his his way of doing it was everybody outside of engineering department. He would just run over. And I like not in a great way all the time. And I think he realized that later in life. But um, it's I think that that kind of thing to, in the defense of those leaders, it's like they're never really taught how to do this. And I know that it sounds like a cop out to a lot of people, but really think about it like you're at no point during your career. And if you stick around, you're going to see this for yourself at no point during your career until you're a a senior chief petty officer or literally a senior chief. Will you get formal leadership development and education until very recently? If you encounter these ELD courses, which I think are a great thing. And um, hopefully pretty soon I'm going to have an awesome guest on to talk about that stuff in detail, but it's until very recently, those, those, mechanisms have not existed until you get to the senior enlisted academy like you get like boot camp a school power school all those things for you guys and then it's like and i know there's like an lcpo course an edmc course for for you guys pipeline wise but it's not they're not talking about leadership development and education they're not talking about soft skills (laughs) like how to take care of people because i've asked i've asked the nukes that have gone through those courses they're like yeah no it's like how to manage maintenance and like like all the things that you're required to do per all the giant books in the engine room, like all the RPMs and whatever, whatever other stuff, EDM and all that crap. And so it's like they're, and, and it's the same with Ford chiefs. It's the same with surface chiefs and everybody else. It's like at no point are they provided the education and, and, and any kind of like qualification or vetting or, or formal mentoring or anything 
unless they luck their way into a great mentor that will prepare them to do those jobs well. You know what I mean? So they their only context is the stuff you're describing is the the negative interactions and, and stuff like that where um where it's like they have those types of of responses and are creating those types of cultures. Okay, so yeah, they, I'll edit out the glitch. We had a audio issue where one end dropped out, but um, but yeah, I mean, go go ahead and start with the the prototype thing that you wanted to to build on next. Okay, yeah. So uh, I just want to talk about basically the very end of prototype. So you go through six to I think the longest I've heard of is like eight to ten months. You know, depending mm-hmm. on plant availability, like we talked about with quals. But yeah, so you finally get to the end. And the biggest thing that happened for me, well, it was two things, uh, interacting with sea returnees and seeing the difference between, you know, surface and subs as, as much as, you know, surface nukes definitely have it hard too, but just the personalities of the guys coming from submarines was what ended up finally convincing me to volunteer for subs. Cause I didn't do that in boot camp or anything. How so? So Oh, uh, there was a RC dev chief, I think he was. Pretty sure mm-hmm. he's an RC dev chief, but we were basically just asking him, you know, why did you go submarines? Like, how did you feel about it in the fleet? And this guy was retiring after his prototype tour. But mm-hmm. basically the the big thing that stuck with me is that he pointed to the fish on his chest and said, you know, excuse my French here, but said, These mean I'm a goddamn professional on the boat. Yeah. I was like, oh. I don't know why that just hit me like yeah. real hard. So when, yeah, uh, volunteer for subs. And then the other big thing is, you know, you pass your final board, which mm. is anything is fair game pretty much through the whole year and a half that you've been trying to be a nuke. So you finally get up to your board. And once you pass that, you know, you get your super cool lanyard that says yeah. you're, you're not just some student anymore, but you also get the N on the, end of your rating so instead of being an uh, em i was now an yeah. en which is Ooh. for students that's like a big thing <laughs> yeah you know, it's like when you start sure. getting to write ss on the end yeah. of your your rank when you get your fish but well like, yeah so i got to go to a school as a, i was i was believe it or not a mess management specialist when i first came in so i was an ms back in the day um <laughs> and so like we went to a school before sub school and so i got to show up like at the end of a school you get your rating badge so it's like I got to show up to a school with a rating badge on and I thought I was a big deal dude <laughs> like so I yeah I get it that's that's cool that they still do stuff like that cuz I when I was I used to run the a school too um that was my last shore duty before the current one and um I we were trying we were trying to come up with something like there were quartermasters on my last boat that did um they would wear the little quartermaster pin when they would get qualified quartermasters just a thing that the ANAV did on our boat and I thought it was really cool and I was looking into um i collect a bunch of like militaria basically like combo cover anchors and fish and i'm that guy um i have combo covers themselves on a shelf and um and i got this pin i I got a book that was on all those insignia and stuff and i got this pin it's a it's basically like somebody riding a torpedo like it's a, a like a a bull like a bull rider Okay. And it's a pin they used to give out at TMA school, like in the forties. And I was looking, they have replicas all over the place, but I was looking for an authentic one for a long time. And I finally got one and it was, it was just a pin they would give to graduates of the A school. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I'm like, 
we should have this like we should have something unique like this that yeah. they get when they leave the schoolhouse i'm like it, it, like it's the and i'm not comparing it to this in, in importance but like it kind of like the marines have their ega like the eagle open anchors a big deal and that's what they get when they become a marine and it's like we never really had like we had a navy ball cap but like we ne- you never really get anything like that and i'm like i feel like it'd be really cool because that it, it, we have the same function like when you get your fish like that's a big deal. I still yeah. have the dolphins. I was like, they're in my case with all the ones I collect where it's got my name and the the whole number engraved on the back. And it's, that's a huge deal to you. You know, like you're never going to not have those fish unless you choose to like pass them on to someone. Right. And it's, it's, I wish we did that. Like I wish. And so it's, even if it's a lanyard, you know what I mean? Like, it's still cool that they do something. That's, um, that's actually we, funny that you talk about passing on fish and then the lanyard. Yeah. Uh, that was another thing. I just kind of side note, but at the end of prototype, yeah. my staff advisor that was in charge of me, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a pretty sarcastic guy. So I was always, yeah. you know, giving him a hard time, but he talked about passing fish down within the EDIV on his boat yeah. where when the most junior guy would get pinned with fish, the most senior guy would pin him with his fish. And so that's cool they were just getting passed down to the department over generations of nukes. And so I asked him, you know, when I graduate prototype, does that mean I get your lanyard or something? And he basically, you know, told me like, get out of my face. We're not doing anything like that. It's like, all right, well, yeah. whatever. <laughs> I saw him my last day on site up in New York and, you know, Tom was on my way out to the fleet. And was like, you know, it was, you know, good knowing you like, thanks for all the help. And he's like, yeah, come here real quick. And he, snatched the lanyard off my neck and gave me his and i was just like yeah. oh that's that's kind of cute you, i guess did you cry <laughs> yeah i was gonna say no, I definitely that's didn't cool cry. <laughs> no I, i'm kidding that that's cool that he did that though and it, like it's just a lanyard i get it and i don't yeah. you know i'm not assuming a level of importance but it's a lanyard uh, like so i kind of am a little bit but yeah like it's still symbolic of the, the same thing and it's like i i wish i wish more places did a thing like that because i think that that kind of stuff's really cool it, it's meaningful to those people. I don't care who you are. Cause like I, I used to do stuff like that a lot where even the stuff I collect, so like, I don't, I don't know if you know a lot about like historic dolphins, but like, so for enlisted people, it used to be a patch on or the sleeve of our dress blues. And then at a certain point it became the, the pin, which was, it was like after world war two for enlisted people. But you see those deep wave dolphins that people like to wear. So it's a lot of times you see chiefs doing it. Um, they're just like the real old school looking ones. And you can get those pins sometimes like you can find replicas easily, but uh, the authentic ones, like I've had, I've found a handful of sets. Like I have an officer set and or two maybe, and then I, right now I think I have one or two enlisted ones, and then just some older versions of like what what are more a more traditional style of fish, but like still old an older version of what you than what you can see now. Um, but anyway, I've yeah. like given the sets of those to some of my guys when they got qualified. Like I gave. Um, the most junior guy I got qualified on my last submarine as I was leaving, I gave him a set of deep wave dolphins that I polished up. And um, just because it, I knew it didn't have to be my fish per se, but I knew me giving him something like that would be meaningful to him. So I would do stuff like that. And like um, I had an A-gang chief that um, tacking on the crow used to be a literal thing where you're throwing a stitch into a crow on someone's uniform and everybody takes a turn. And so yeah. uh, I had an A-gang chief that did that on my last boat. And I, like I was sitting in machinery two, which saw on a BN, there's multiple level or multiple machinery rooms um, on Ohio class boats. And we're in machinery two, which is kind of like the main, it's like the main machinery room, like AMR. And uh, 
that's where they were doing it. They had like people's poopy suits uh, on the one of the workbenches. And each person that got promoted, it was like people would come through the space. Like everybody in A-Gang did it, but people would come through the space and like throw a stitch into their crows. And it was just like, you know, they're going to keep that for the rest of their life. Like it's, oh, yeah. it was the coolest thing. I Like I asked him, I'm like, can I just come watch? Like I just wanted to observe. And I even felt like I'm such a dork about this kind of stuff. Like I, I, he asked me if I wanted to throw a stitch in some of their, and I like, I'm like, no, I just want to be in here. To like, I don't feel like that's my thing. I feel, I want you guys and like end to do it. Like, I just really wanted to see this because I've, it was something I knew about cause I study history, but, and I tried to get it going. We were going to do like picture frames at the A school and put a crow on it and like have everybody take a turn throwing a stitch. And then that would just be like a keepsake. And I thought that would be, and I just couldn't get anybody else to buy in except me. Like I was the only one that thought it was a good idea. And so it just never grew legs. But, um, when that, I watched that happen, man, I almost cried in the machinery room. That that's the <laughs> kind of stuff is so meaningful to me. Like, I just think it's so cool that there are leaders that exist that do things like that. And I think that's, that symbolism and the, the communicating of how much you care about them as a leader by those types of gestures it's like you can't there's no other way to accomplish that kind of leadership capital like with your people like you're never going to get the kind of credibility you do that like when you do something like that and it's authentic and i think that and it's authentic is probably the most important part because when this a gang chief did that it like it's who he is you know like he's that guy that does that and it was really meaningful to him. And so it was meaningful to them. But like if somebody tried to do that artificially and they were just doing it to almost try to buy leadership capital, like it would, everybody would be able to tell and it would feel fake. And Oh yeah. It'd be like, totally transparent. You know, right. And but so like, I feel like if it's done correctly, things like that, that type of symbolism when, when done authentically is like, there's so much goodness there, man. Like you just, you buy so much credibility and and not that that's why you're doing it, but that's like a fortunate side effect. Yeah. And then, um, when you're talking about doing crows and stuff, when I yeah. re-enlisted and made second class, one of the senior electricians had just made first. Mm-hmm. This was around the same time as the cycle. So when I re-enlisted, I did it on cruise mess and he actually let me, uh, he cut, the crows off of we were still in the the blue nws so he cut his crows off yeah. of his collars and yeah. gave me a second class crows and he was like yeah i'll get the you know the first class one stitched on tomorrow like when i'm off duty or whatever it's not a big deal but mm-hmm. i even still have that pair of blue nws in a tupperware in the garage right now just because I, I don't want to throw them out because they have those crows yeah on them. yeah and i would like i'd cut those crows off probably and keep them forever like it's just one of those things and it's like that stuff's important like when they put um the first, so they, when I made Master Chief, uh, that CMC that I've been talking to you about, put, he put the NW Crow on me, which it was, that was meaningful to me. Like it, they just did it real quick because they like, hey, we want you to go home wearing it and then we'll do the formal like frocking ceremony on Friday. Um, which then that the CMC off the project's boat did it, um, like came and pinned me and my, it was him and his, him and my wife. Um, but uh, it like I kept that I like took it off and put it somewhere. You know what I mean? Like because I want yeah. it, it was meaningful to me that he put that on me and I don't want to like lose it. I'm like, this is important to me. And then the anchors that I was pinned with were my Cobb's anchors where that's that CMC. Like he brought a set with him and pinned me with his anchors. And I was like, that's like so now, though, I'm going to keep those forever. You know what I mean? So like I had to go buy new ones to, so that I could like preserve those ones and never 
like those are ones I'll keep and then I'll give my anchors to other people. But, um, but yeah, it's like the, I don't know, that stuff is, it's important. And it's like, it's one of those things that I feel like if we, cause like we talk about it and we talk about how important it is. We talk about how meaningful it is. And it's like, it's even when you communicate to me that like, that you, like you kind of had a hard time dealing with the, the prior service nukes that did, whatever they did or interacted with you, however they did. It's like, but then the same guy gave you his lanyard before you left. And like, he wouldn't have done that if he didn't care. So it's not like the, the, it's not like they don't care about you. It's that they've never been taught how to properly communicate it while still being a professional and uh, still maintaining the, the like necessary boundaries as a leader and stuff like that. It's like, it's complicated to do that. It's complicated. It, and can be treacherous to like navigate that where you're kind of straddling this line of being a professional and, and maintaining good order and discipline and not fraternizing and not doing all that kind of stuff where you're going to effectively step on the other side of being like, you're going to start to trend towards being a, a less effective leader because of it. So it's like you, you want to communicate that you care and you want to be able to like relate to them and build trust and rapport with them and have them trust you enough to tell you things. But you also need to maintain a certain level of professionalism and boundaries and all those things. And it's like that's not a thing that's like easy to just do. Like you have to you have to learn about like the, the ways in which you do that. And you have to talk to people who are experienced in doing it and you have to learn what modes of communication are best suited for you doing that because your personality and your um, like leadership abilities might not be best suited to the the way that I accomplish that. You know what I mean? And it's like, those are, it's a very complex nuanced thing that you need to learn how to do. And a lot of that learning comes from experience, like a bad sports analogy. Um, I do jujitsu and it's something I'm really passionate about. I just started recently as like a, I needed to do something physical outside of the house. Uh, I have anxiety and all this other crap, but it like, it helps a lot. And so when I started doing that, um, the gym I started at was brand new. And so we had our instructor, but everybody kind of started together. So there wasn't any like effectively like fleet returnees. There wasn't any experienced guys in the gym besides our instructor. So when you're rolling with somebody, like when you're practicing jujitsu with somebody, it's like we're both idiots. Like neither of us know what we're doing. <laughs> so it's like, you're just, we practice, we would drill, like we would practice like technique coach goes around and like, uh, corrects you or shows you again or whatever, or you can sometimes he'll come down and do it with you because he's educated. And so like, you'll get to feel what it's supposed to, what you're supposed to do. And you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. But then we had this kid, uh, come in that was a, a four stripe blue belt. So it's like, think like senior E five, like, like you probably like you're probably like a four stripe blue belt. Um, and he comes in and I rolled with him and we did, we do these things called King of the Hill where it's like, we were told like, you're in this position. The other guy's in that position. You're supposed to defend. He's supposed to attack. And whoever gets to this other position wins. And then the winner stays and another guy comes and tries to do the same thing. So I went with him first. So he's fresh. He's got all his energy. And he, I was actually doing well. And I don't know if it's because he was letting me do things to tr- set traps because that's what people do in, in, in when they get better at it. But um, I was doing pretty well. And then, and I kind of tired him out too. And cause he was just kind of getting back into the gym and getting back in shape and stuff. Um, cause he's a Navy guy on a carrier and, uh, just had been out of it for a while, but he was still very good. And 
he at the very end, I right when I thought I was going to win, he just did this thing where he felt my weight shift to a place where he knew he could just sweep me and just roll me over. And I had no idea how he did it or what happened. It was just all of a sudden I was getting flipped over and there was nothing I could do about it. And I was just like, how did you do that? And he explained it to me after he's like, man, I don't even know how to explain it to you. It's just a thing that you develop with experience where you feel it like you just feel the body weight distribution and you just know like, ooh, uh, no, I can sweep him. Like you just yeah. all of a sudden he just knew and he did what he needed to do to roll me over. And it wasn't much. And I was just like, God, and, it, and it, I've talked to other guys that are wrestlers that same thing. They've been just doing that their entire life and they feel it. They just know. And it's like, I, I, I can't, you have to just, you, you have to feel it to, to be able to recognize when it, like what it feels like when it's, when it's time, like based on where their weight, body weight distribution is. And I was just like, you know, so bad source analogy, but like it, it equates to that a lot where it's like. I have a hard time articulating it exactly what it even means, but there's that those soft skills that are going to make somebody a good leader and make them be able to do all those things that are, that are necessary to um, best take care of the people they're responsible for leading or, or educating. And also like be able to, to maintain the boundaries and professionalism that they need to. And they, it, we're still in the military. They still need to like, do there's still certain functions and there's a rank structure and there's all those things that need to be formal and need to be maintained but i can do all those things while still letting you know i care about you and and it's 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 simple not easy you know like it's one of those things that no matter how i articulate it it kind of makes it 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 makes it sound simple but it's really difficult to do and it, it like it just takes time and practice doing it to be able to recognize it and be able to say like okay, I get it now. But also what's weird about it is like, you need to be like educated on all of the, the things that kind of feed into that, like all of the soft skills and the communication trust and how to build it. And it's like all these little things that all come together to build that. And it's like, it's, it's very difficult to explain like the, the being able to practice all those things and straddle that line, I guess I'm probably talking in circles at this point, but like, well, that's no, the I've, thing, you know, it's like, it's really difficult to, to yeah, do I, that, but they care. And that's like, that's a great illustration of it is like, even though they, it might not seem like it at the time. And yes, they need a lot of development to be able to do a better job of it throughout because, because what if he didn't give you that lanyard, then you might just have gone to the fleet thinking that guy was a jerk. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I I think the big difference is, and I mean this will actually lead into, you know, my experience getting my first boat. But yeah, having the anchors or not. So when you have right, you know, my staff advisor prototype as a first class giving me his lanyard, like that was really cool. But the experience I had with chiefs at prototype wasn't nearly as good. So and it was kind of the same when I got to my first boat. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, I guess you know on that subject like showing up to the first boat you mm-hmm. are coming out of prototype and kind of have these expectations of what your job is going to be and you know you kind of think like oh I've, I've qualified on a plan like i can get this done and it's just totally right. different which if the bitterness for nukes doesn't start in the pipeline it's definitely i would say in probably the first month on board what's different is about where um I'm not sure if I could even pin it down to one thing. I yeah. think it's just that that initial culture shock and seeing 
you know, all the other rates, like the, the coners and people you don't see in prototype, um, having to deal with them and go to, go to them for checkouts and the standard, you know, four to the watertight door is totally different for how checkouts go or like the way of life goes. Oh, so yeah. there's a lot of new stuff you got to get used to all of a sudden, which when I showed up to my first boat, they were a month into deployment. So I flew overseas to go meet them. And I think it was maybe the first 30 minutes on board. I had a couple of people tell me basically like this boat isn't how the Navy should work. And then you know, I'm kind of <laughs> thinking like, Oh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And they're like, Oh, you'll find uh, out. Like, oh, probably a bad geez. thing. Yeah. And, uh, actually like first experience being on the boat, I came down one of the hatches with like my sea bag and a backpack. And one of the senior electricians had met me up on the pier and was going to show me Ooh. where my rack was going to be. And I accidentally bumped some guy with my sea bag trying to pass him in the P way. Cause it destroyed you. I'm sure. Oh, well, it didn't really destroy me. He just, you know, gave me a pretty good shove into the like bulkhead. Uh, wow. I get, you know, like, get on my way nub. And I was just like, Oh yeah. boy, I made it. Like, <laughs> cause you get told those stories about being just a nub when you show up. So I was yeah. like, Oh, they were right. Cool. Yeah. And then, uh, pretty quickly found out that boat had a very strong divisional level of leadership. Like all the divisions okay. were working well together and eng depth E6 and below was for the most part, pretty tight. There was, you know, the normal okay. feuds between divisions and personal yeah. stuff going on, on a deployment or whatever. But there was a very strong divide between the divisions and chiefs quarters. Okay, uh, so to the point where someone actually told me you don't go in chief's quarters unless you're told to report there. Like when I first showed up, like basically, like if your chief says, "Hey, come down to chief's quarters. I'm down here. When I ask you about this, like tell them you want to be in one cruise mess until they tell you report. You don't go in there because it's just really? going to turn into a DRB for no reason, like that sort of wow. thing." So when you said, because before you just said um, like divisional leadership was strong, are you talking about E6 and below divisional leadership that like? Or like the division yeah, like chief the running the division and, was okay. I gotcha. So no, like E6 the LPOs were good and yeah, yeah. And then um, Ediv actually didn't have representation in Chiefs quarters when I showed up. The chief, okay. the day I showed up to my boat, the chief actually got flown off for medical reasons. So okay, that put Ediv at a pretty strong disadvantage. Right. Um. So what? So like I I get vaguely like don't go in the chief's quarters but like what so what was the issue like what what it what is kind of like what what would you th point at and be like well this was the kind of the problem with chief level leadership if you can point it out like what do you think it was besides just they're jerks uh i mean trying to look back that far like i don't think i could point out one thing but okay. the experiences i did have in those first couple months was basically you know if you go and the chief's quarters to like, I'm doing my check-in sheet. I have to go find Y and C. I yeah. walk in there and, you know, tell them I'm, I'm new. I'm trying to do a check-in. Then all of a sudden you're getting told like, Hey, this is messed up about uniform. And then some other chief is like, yeah, and this, and then they just kind of start building on each other. Like, what are you even doing here? Like, and it, wow. it's all, I think it starts as, Oh, this kid's new. We need to set the standard, but it, it just came across gross. Yeah. You know, <laughs> So uh, yeah, that was okay. kind of an interesting shell shock into the fleet. And then, you know, showing up on deployment is just adding on to that. But yeah, the, the nuke side of stuff is more like, like I said, like what I wanted to talk about, what I think is okay. interesting is that 
you're you know you, you have fresh blood coming into the boat every couple months if, yeah you know if that's how you want to put it but the crew's constantly rotating and there's still just this i don't know if stigma is the right word there's just this idea that when you first show up to the boat you should just know how stuff works like you just came out <laughs> prototype you know how to qualify and you're like okay mm. I, I understand like i get a checkout i get points basically like right but then you're getting used to this like boat culture and everything and i've heard of boats uh i think other people have talked about on the podcast so basically saying like you know either worry about four draft calls first and then do the other one like kind of try yeah. to split it out which i'm not sure how well that would even work because it's going to go wrong in some way but the biggest thing was definitely the the Chiefs quarters, EDIV not having a representation, and then the EDMC we had at the time was a super crusty EDMC. Like <laughs> I think he was twenty four years in or something, senior chief. Real upset wow. they hadn't been master chief yet. And okay. my initial impression of how Ingedep got ran was not how it was supposed to go at all. Okay. So uh the main thing being when my boat uh, ended up going to shipyard a few months after deployment for a you know just routine overhaul, we got a new EDMC and then we found out, you know, hey, if you fail this uh monthly CTE exam, you're supposed to do an upgrade. You're supposed to talk about the questions you failed. Yeah. So when this new EDMC found out we hadn't been doing that for however long, I got handed a stack of upgrades going back, you know, eight or nine months to when I first showed up. Um. That's disgusting. Like you, you have to do all of these like by close of business tomorrow. Oh, cool. <laughs> That's disgusting. Oh, wow. Um, so just yeah. the initial impressions were very, I know it's like a very me specific example, but a lot of those initial impressions I had end up being very similar to from, you know, people I've talked to new culture in general of just right. Like you, you kind of just, yeah, I've definitely heard a lot of the the what you said earlier, where you said like when you show up to a submarine having having never really been on a submarine, they just expect you to know how to function and expect you to know how to qualify, and that's completely unreasonable. And it's it's funny to me that like although even for me, like I've I've noticed that to a certain extent in in different areas of of my career, and it's gone to the point where when I was qualifying Cobb as a senior chief, I would, I would have conversations with people and they would say things like, uh, you need to be involved in the Cobb community. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? And I could never get an answer. And then I'm looking at this like PQS, it's called a charge book, uh, is what they call it. Um, I, the ex- explanation is not really relevant to our conversation, but, uh, it's a, effectively a PQS. And, and so me being a submariner and having qualified lots of things throughout 19 years, I'm, I'm looking at it like, a, a qual card. So I'm like studying and like, cause it's like, you, you get a line in there. It's like a sapper program and it'll have the instruction and then it'll have like five bullet points about the program where it's, it's they're, they're phrased as questions um, or statements of like information that you should know. And so I'm studying, taking notes and then I go talk to somebody about it and they just sign it. And then we have a conversation about something unrelated and then I leave and I'm like, uh, okay, like this doesn't make any sense to me. And then, and then like there'll be other times where um, I'll go in and it's like, I still, I just, I have this wiring where I expect like a checkout or like it, 
it's it, it varies from person to person so like you could go talk to one cob or cmc that was a cob um and that that will happen where they'll just oh so what do you need and they'll just blaze it all off and then they'll talk to you and then other guys will like ask you questions and it's, so it's like well what what is it like what are we doing and then but it, when i would ask questions about like like what is this like what am i what am i supposed to be doing and it's almost like the feeling is kind of like you just have to like network and like get into some kind of secret decodering club or whatever and then once you're in you're just you're gonna get qualified and i'm like well i don't understand because i don't think it's always like that everywhere and i don't think everybody does it that way and i think if i went to a different area it would be different and it but i'm like why why isn't it the same everywhere and why isn't it like a formal qualification process and why and some people if you ask would probably tell you that it's that and so i'm just like it was really confusing and I got pretty disillusioned with it before I decided that it's time to retire. Um, but that was more for, for medical reasons, um, than anything, but it it was, yeah, it was really confusing to me. And I'm just like, why do you just assume that I, I know what this stuff means? Why don't you explain it to me? And then why is it not formalized and just like in an instruction and explainable? But then I feel like a lot of, a lot of our cultures in submarines is, is kind of built that way where it's just like, figure it out, nerd. You know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> like it's answers in the book. Go find the, go find it. And they're like, what book? Like I, where's the book? Like what I have like, yeah, that's like, the why? problem I have with this. Nobody's willing to, they'll always tell you like, go read a book, go find the reference. Yeah. Like, All right, where yeah. can I find this reference? So like, I don't know, man, the, the RPM. Okay, yeah. Cool. <laughs> There's a bazillion of them. Cool. Thanks. And it's like, yeah, I, I I never understood the the lack of willingness to help because it like one of the I go out on submarines now and do inspections. So I get like a, a snapshot of of the culture of the submarine and how they do business each time we go down. It's it's only really on board for like two days total. It's like a half day. Generally, like you BSP on one day, you have one full day and then you BSP off the next day. Sometimes it's two days depending on because we usually pair up with ORS. So we'll go out there and do our inspection while ORS is going on, which is terrible, but it is what it is. Not for me, for the for the division doing it, but because that like you got to think like supply has an inspection going on, but also that like the ORS is going on. So they have to support ORS. So it's yeah. tough for them to care that there's an SMI going like the CSs and LSs care, but, and the supply officer cares, but the rest of the chain of command on the submarine generally, like they, some of the good commands like show us that they care, but they kind of like, we both understand that ORS is the priority, which it's nice when the CEO pops in and like actually talks to us, but generally they're at the end brief and they're distracted and then they leave and we never see them until the out brief. But and it's like, I get it. Like, it's an horse. Like, it's it's a big part of your career progression and the XO's career progression and the EDMC's and everything. Like, I get it. It's the main event. But um, so it, it when we're out there, you get a snapshot of the culture. Um, and what I see the good, the good crews doing, which like the ones that are really high functioning leader at the leadership level are few and far between. Um, but the ones that are really crushing it, you see things like um, I see I saw a cob who in the plan of the day, it didn't say delinquent. It said shipmates that need our help. And it was a list of all the people that were behind in quals. And I've seen it rephrased more subtly to just behind in quals instead of delinquent. Um, and I've seen a lot of like mechanisms where we would do uh, they call they called it like a um, 
it was a stupid word some kind of like qual like uh field day type thing or whatever where it would it would be uh, like qual rodeo or something yeah something yeah like yeah. a rodeo or a mardi gras or a, or just some some stupid term like that where it was like uh all a bunch of offgoing like supervisors and like senior like watchstanders would spend an hour on the mess decks after the meal just helping people with calls and it was like i I know it kind of runs counter to the way that a lot of people are brought up. And so by virtue of that, they think it runs counter to the culture, but I would argue that that's just good leadership. Like it's, that's how it should be. And that's how you would have wanted it to be when you were where they are. So can we stop pretending that it's not and just do it? Because the, the salty, angry guys that, that think that that's BS is because that's just them effectively being jealous that it didn't happen for them. And it's like, well, look, man, I don't have a time machine to go back and fix your experience, but you can fix his experience or her experience. So just do it like make it better for them. Like, I don't understand why that's a hard concept for people to accept and like buy into. It's like you have an opportunity to fix their experience because you had a negative one and we're creating this mechanism for that. So just do it. And even if we even if the command level doesn't artificially block off time in the plan of the day for you to do it, just do it. Like, why? Why is it hard? Because that's what's funny to me is this is a this is a problem that's fixable by people like you. It's you don't need me for this. You don't need anybody for this. Like any fully qualified second class on their first tour on a submarine can fix this problem for a handful of non-quals. You know what I mean? Like especially in the nuclear, like after the watertight door in the engine room, like guys like you can fix this experience for a lot of non-qual nukes that are coming into the fleet right now and so why aren't we doing that and i'm not saying you're not i'm I'm confident that you probably did but there are a lot of people that will tell the same story that you're telling about their experience but then they're the salty angry guy at prototype on shore duty that just hates all junior nukes or the lpo that i watched eat the soul of all of their non-quals especially the ones that were having (laughs) trouble with quals like they wanted to like they wanted to like roast this guy on a on a spike like it was they wanted to burn him at the stake they just hated this kid and he came and fsa for me and he worked himself to the bone and he had the best attitude ever. And he was a great kid. Probably should have never been a nuke. Like, I don't think he had the academic aptitude to do a lot of the things that are required of you guys. But he was a great kid. And if they would have got behind him and pushed instead of just kicked him in his face every time they saw him and like made sure he knew they hated him. Like this, this was like, I I don't know. He had the, the, um, like mental endurance of like Rudy from that bat like football movie. Like he just, they would destroy this kid and he would just say, thank you, sir. May I have another? And it got to the point where, I mean, I think this kid's mental health was being affected. Like he started to get sad and he was the type of kid you didn't think it was possible could get sad. And I, I loved this kid. Uh, he was awesome, but he, you know, he probably should have never been a nuke. He probably, he would have made like a better, I don't know, like an a ganger or something. Like he was, it probably like an ET like of some, some forward ET rate. Like he wanted to do electrical things, but like the nuke part was killing him. Like he just couldn't, yeah. couldn't pass interviews. A handful or, of people like that yeah, in the, in the nuke kid. world. Yeah. yeah. Where if you're, it kind of goes back to, you know, being put on plus hours in the pipeline, but if you're not considered smart by nuke yeah. standards, like you just suffer 
And some of the yeah. people I've met like that, and I'm not saying I did, you know, hot in the pipeline. Like I definitely struggled my fair bit, but some of the people that are really just meeting the bare minimum of being a nuke are really awesome people when they're not, yeah. you know, trying to make it in the engine room, like outside of right. work or even just watching a movie on cruise mess. Like they're really good dudes. They just, they're just stuck in this career path now. And the yeah. Navy makes it so hard for nukes to do anything else, especially if you reenlist. Cause then there's that big yeah. looming, like, Oh, you're going to pay back your bonus. Like, mm-hmm. which I mean, that's tens of thousands of dollars. That's a yeah. real threat, but <laughs> Yeah. And it's like, I, it, uh, there's a large part of me that always, like, I always wonder, and, and this kid, I don't know that he was salvageable, even if he had the best leadership structure in the world. Like, I, I really don't know if he had the academic aptitude to do it. He, sh- he was all heart, but like, there are just certain things that heart's not going to do it. You know what I mean? Like he needed yeah. the, the capacity intellectually to be able to do, and I'm not, he wasn't stupid. He just, this it's just different. It's a different type of intellect that will get you through what you guys do. And, um, I don't think he, he had that. And, um, but I also wonder that, like, I think there, I was talking today to somebody that I, I met, it was an officer. I told you earlier, I was, I was going to sit a court martial and then I couldn't because like they'd screen the jury. And I think it was just based on my, where I fall in Naval demographics, like rank and experience wise, I wasn't the right fit. So unfortunately I don't get to do that now, which I'm bummed about because I want to see what that was all about. But um, I was talking to a JO because we were, there's a lot of waiting. We were like sitting outside waiting to go in or like they would, they're questioning us individually as they screened us. And so we just, just a lot of standing around waiting. So I was talking to this um, JO that was, uh, she was explaining something to me about um, like somebody that had washed out of a certain pipeline, like flight school or something like that. And what happened to them and whatever. And I told him the story about a JO on uh, my last boat that he, he was a guy that like he struggled the whole way. Like he qualified entering off. watch and stood it, but he was, it took him longer than it should have. And he, I don't think he was great at it at first, but he figured it out. And then same thing when he came into control, it was like struggle city for longer than he should have been. And then eventually he got there. Like he was a pretty good officer of deck once he, once he got around to it. And I had him a bunch of like when I was staying at dive, I had him as an officer of deck and he was good. Like he, he figured it out. It just took him longer and he needed help. Um, but then he got to PNEO and failed it twice. And then they kicked him out of the community. And I'm like, this is a full Lieutenant with fish officer deck qualified, like has experience doing it. Um, like, spent the full four years or whatever it is on a submarine and they poured all that money into his training as a nuke. And then he did all that time and had all that experience on the boat and they kicked him out of the submarine community. And he, and he was a guy that he, when he did the interview portion, like he, he passed the school and I, he may have, he may have failed a portion of the school, but he got to the interview. So I feel like he passed the school, however that works. And then, there, whatever interviews you do, it was like he failed one part and passed one part. And then when he went back the second time, it, it like switched where he failed that part because he got into interviewed by a different person. And then like so he passed the party failed and then failed the party passed the previous time. So it's like if you put them together, he passed everything. But like they didn't yeah. do that, obviously. And so like they kicked him out of the submarine community. I'm like, I, I, how does that make any sense? And it's like a dude that if it was structured in a way where the idea was to get behind him and push and to help him. And I get that they remediated him once and let him go through the school again. But I'm like this, he has proven over four years that he can do this job. 
So it's like, well, I understand that's like how it's constructed and they have to pass PNEO and all this stuff. It's like, I don't understand how that guy is not like rehabable. Like, why can't they send him back to see again for like another, I don't know, like, so maybe he goes to a shore duty for a year or 18 months and then goes back as like a super J.O. for a year and proves himself again and then gets another chance to, I don't know, gets another chance to interview or whatever. I just, I don't know. The, the, yeah, I've, I've never understood that part about PNEO if you do fail it, because I mean, I guess if it's just space on board or maintaining, you know, the rank structure of officers, but you get plenty of enlisted people that go back to second and third boats and they're standing, right. you know, watches that you would stand on your first tour. Right. And then that second or third tour is when they finally, you know, qualify supervisor, or whatever, like move up in the, the watch standing structure. So I just don't get why failing PNEO is just the the hard cut for JOs. Like, yeah, and I, I've never even understood. Like, so we had the uh, I was same thing. I brought up a nuke mechanic with the same person when I was talking about that, where it was like you guys have this hard and fast requirement that in order to be considered for chief, you have to be qualified engineering watch supervisor. I'm pretty sure that applies to all rates on submarines for nukes, but yeah, um, but yeah. So like, he, there were guys that just like would refuse to qualify engineering watch supervisor. They're just like, yeah, I'm not doing it. Cause I don't want to be a chief, not because they couldn't like, he just, this kid, he was a nuke mechanic. We, he was, I'll, I'll tell you the name. I don't want to put his name out, but like even the nickname people know, um, he's a character, but he was a great dude that worked really hard, but all he wanted to do was fix stuff. Like he just, he was a wrench turner and that's where he was happiest when he was all covered in grease and he was like wrenching on something, rebuilding the valve. I don't know, whatever they do. And, um, that was what he wanted to do. And so like, he just didn't qualify and he didn't want to be the LPO. He didn't want to do any of that stuff. He just wanted to turn a wrench and teach other people how to turn a wrench. And I'm like, why? That seems really valuable to me to have like a really experienced journeyman mechanic that is a high level expert that has seen all the things that could possibly happen materially. Um, to sorry, I was yelling at my dogs. Um, <laughs> that like to be able to share that experience with with the junior mechanics it's like they're, they're just it seems like there's a ton of value there and i don't understand like the upper oh, out philosophy is. either like why can't i just let this guy be a really good technician and like and it's not like we don't need those and i i'll talk to certain new crates like rc divers and they're like yeah fleet returnee first classes aren't real they're like unicorns because it's like they'll make it and then they'll qualify the things and then they'll either get out of the Navy or make chief and then they come or go LDO or whatever. Like they don't, you don't get a fleet returning first class in RC div apparently, according to my buddies. And so like, I'm like, well, why is that? Like, why can't, if somebody really likes being a technician, why isn't that okay? Like I, that's something I'll never understand if, if for any rate in the entire Navy. It's like, there's a lot of value in having somebody that's just really good at their job. We had a, a similar situation on my my first boat with the uh, CS chief that showed up towards the end of my time on board. Mm-hmm. Um, just you know, down from like bottom of Louisiana, like Bayou guy made a yeah. whole lot of homemade gumbo sort of stuff, like a lot of mm-hmm. seafood. He was just killing it in the galley, and like the whole crew, the you know, just feeling about the food on board and everything went way up. Yeah. And then I think it was maybe a month or two. He got taken out of the galley. Like yep. he stopped making those gotta, meals and the gotta stay and watch, bud. 
Yeah, the well, it wasn't yep. even that. Like his cooks were trying to make the same quality of recipes and like homemade style food, and it just yeah. wasn't working. And then, oh, okay, I don't know how true it was, but word got around that you know he got talked to in the quarters about he's breaking his role as the chief if he's on the line cooking with his guys. It's like, all right, I mean, sure, but like Dang. this sort of stuff, like the whole crew appreciates. Y- yes and no. Like what he, what should have been, and. This could have been he didn't have cooks that like no because like, look, man, I got a fancy culinary degree and a lot of experience like doing it in real life. And it's you can't teach everybody like there's certain people that are just yeah. never going to be good cooks. And, and it, it's also a thing that takes a really long time. Um, like people think that like CSA school is 25 days. It's woefully inadequate. They might as well just stop doing it. And, and I loved that job. It was my, one of probably my favorite job in the entire Navy. Um, I, I just because getting to like interact with the students, develop them, follow them as they went out on their you know careers in the fleet and whatever. But it it's not enough time to to create a functional cook at at all. Like not even like a basic entry level like functional cook on watch. It's like, it's not even close to enough time. And if you look at the way the civilian industry does it, it's like the shortest certificate program, like that's called an accelerated certificate program at the culinary Institute of America. And the, I might, my, my information might be outdated, but it's six months long. Six months is the shortest period of time. You can find normal certificate programs are a year long. And then obviously associate degrees are two years. Long. Um, so it takes a very long time to teach somebody how to be a, like a real cook, like a real form like classically trained uh like cook and it's i'm not even saying chef on purpose because you're not there yet like that's that gets into like way more experience and like leadership and management but to be able to to teach somebody to do what that chief was doing like it takes a long time and like i never like i qualified some things and then when i made chief and i i, w- I never had any fleet attorneys when i was on my first chief's tour uh, my cob like analyzed that and being the great leader that he was like said, yeah, you, I don't want you in control. I want you in the galley supervising your guys because they need you here and I want the food to be good. <laughs> like, so like, but I needed to be there. I was the only like supervisory element that existed and I had to sleep at some point. So I got to spend a ton of time training my cooks. And so maybe it was the guys that didn't have the aptitude or, or, ability or maybe he wasn't teaching them he was just doing it and and that's a problem that like that he needed to teach them how to do it and maybe he wasn't allowed enough time before that intervention happened but maybe that intervention was legitimate also because like you can't i tell a story all the time it's like my guys kicked me out of the galley at a a point on that on that boat it was like i they got to a point where I had trained them so well. They're like, seriously, chief, get out. I don't need you in here. And they said to me, like, you trained us. We don't need you in here. Like, we're doing what you taught us how to do. So, like, go away. We'll come get you if we need you. And I was like, oh. I feel like that's the ultimate goal, though. It, like, it is. For any rate. It, yeah, it 100% is. But I like for that chief, I don't know that it's it's entirely fair to say that like, again, I mean, there's a lot of variables there and we don't know what we don't know, but those chiefs, those chiefs intervening, it could have been valid, like because him walking away and them not being able to do what he was doing. That's a problem. Like he, he eventually like, and I don't know if he was afforded enough time to properly train them or if they, maybe it was an aptitude thing. Like maybe they just didn't have the skill set. And it's like, some of that stuff is teachable, but some of it, it's like people just, there's a lot of like, multitasking and and like uh 
there's a lot going on all at the same time. And so you have to have the skill set. You have to get enough repetitions into where it's like you almost don't have to think about it. And then you're doing a lot of multitasking at the same time. And you just you develop an experience level where there's there's almost like feel that goes into it where you just you just need to know when this is done and what time you should put this in the oven or what time you should start this thing and then this thing. And then you have to balance like what pieces of equipment are full and because I might need to use the kettle kettles on a fast boat three times and I've only got two of them. So which, what do I need to do first so that that product doesn't sit in the warmer too long and turn to crap? Like there's a lot, but it all has to be done on time and I have to have enough of it and I have to, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot going on in there. And when you're doing it really well, like it takes a long time to train a person to be good. And I would tell people like it would take me about, three months to train and qualify a galley watch captain. It would take me about six months to trust them. And then it takes them about a year to, for me to just be able to walk away. You know, like it takes a a year for them to get to a point where they're, if they're going to get really good at it at at that one year point or slightly before they're, they're, they're at that point where they're like, they're killing it. And it's, it, it's not always going to happen for everybody. Like I, I spent a lot of time, with my cooks training them on that boat. And it was like, I got two of them were incredible. Um, another two of them were like average. And then there was a couple that, I mean, just, it was never going to happen. Like it just wasn't like they could do an import duty day, but like, and even then, like some of the food quality might be suspect for one of the guys. The other guy was kind of like, he was decent. But underway, trying to feed the whole crew, like, and have it be quality, it just what it just they were never going to get it, and it's that's real. Like, it's I you're only going to have, I mean, best case scenario, you're going to have like four that are that are good, and yeah. like two that are like pipe hitters. Um, but a lot of times, I mean, like it's one, <laughs> like that's a pipe hitter, two that are like average, and then the rest are like, yeah, I'll find something for you to do, but. Um, it's a really tough thing. So like, yeah, I don't know. So I probably spent way too much time on that cause it's my wheelhouse. <laughs> like, it's like, I, you know, like it, it was he afforded enough time to train those people. Were they the type of people that are ever going to catch on? And then, or was he just in there doing it? Cause I see that a lot, man. Like I'll see like, especially CS ones and young chiefs that are really good cooks. It's like, they love doing it. So they just want to be in the galley cooking. And it's like, you can't do that anymore. It's not your role anymore. And so you get back into that wrench turner thing. It's like, like, is it okay to let them do that? But then you wouldn't, the problem being that a lot of times those first classes or, I mean, if they're a chief, it's off the table, but young first classes gets thrust into roles where they're the lead. They're the lead. They're filling a chief billet because there's no chief for it. And it's like, they're not the type of people that should be in that role. And all they want to do is be in the galley cooking because that's what they love. And so it like degenerates and the guys aren't getting taken care of because they don't have any real leadership. They have a first class that's functioning as a second class. And so you end up in that kind of a way. So what probably happened is there's a lot of CSs on submarines that make chief that don't even really want to be chiefs and let alone like will be successful based on, you know, their level of experience and training and everything else. Because like the quotas are higher than they probably should be based on a quota driven system. And you end up with people that are like barely qualified. And sometimes they don't even want to do it. Like all they want. And and like, like they might want to be a chief, but they don't want to like do the things chiefs do. Like they want the paycheck and the prestige, but they want to be in the galley burning stew. And it's because that's what they love to do. They still want to turn a wrench, but they want to be a chief too. And it's like, you can't, 
you can't have both, man. Like as a, as a chief or a senior chief on a submarine, I was in the galley actually cooking on like halfway night or Christmas or like some other special, like, like return to port, like on BNs, we would just get pizza, but like on a, like the night before we get home, like I'd probably do like a pretty good meal, like stuff like that. Like it would be a special occasion or like training. And that's it. Like, I don't have the luxury of going in there and cooking like that anymore. And it sucks because like, I want to be in there training because I want those guys to be awesome, but it takes a long time to do that. And you're generally not afforded the opportunity, especially my dude, my second boat, I was seeing eight hours of dive every day. And then I had 10 collateral duties and I was filling in for the cob. And I like, I don't, I never got to go in there. They took, I, I talked them into taking me off the watch bill for five days at a time, like twice. And it's like, that's not enough time to, to teach six cooks how to do their job. Well, yeah. you just, it's impossible. And then I'd get, my favorite is, you know, RC Div chief, uh, gr- he's a great dude. He's a good friend of mine, but, um, he was famous for t- basically telling me like, I, like they'd be like, Hey, what do we got to do to make the food better? I'm like, take me off the watch bill. And they're like, Oh, you can't do your job and stand watch cookie. I do it all the time. I'm like, you stand watch in your workspace and do your job for eight hours to so shut your mouth. Like yeah, your like job is the watch. The, yeah, it's that's not I'm not standing eight hours of dive in the galley. Like, so I can't do. No, I can't do both because I wouldn't sleep. I'd have to be doing lines of coke off the f- counter in the galley. Like, that's not. <laughs> and then I just die like six weeks into the deployment. Like, it's not it's not real, man. Like, I'd, I have to come off the watch bill. It's or or like be a split kick like or whatever where I have a bunch of bandwidth to do both every day. But I, I was three section. I was, it was just like everybody else. Like I, I don't have time for this. And then I'd get off watch and you know, like you got to do your pre-watch brief. You got to do your post-watch training. You got to do yeah. cleanup. You got to do freaking code red. You got to do all this other stuff. And then I'm, I'm the assistant ship's diving officer. So I'm writing dive and chief of the watch exams and then administering them and then grading them. And then I'm the simio and then I'm the like, whatever, man, like it, name it as a battle stations drill inserter. And on a BN, that's like a full-time job, like for a couple days a week where you're like, go to freaking battle stations, like you do war days and you're doing all these battle station scenarios all the time. So it's like, I, my whole off going on those days was, yeah, like we had to prepare the package, route it, brief the drills, insert the anomalies, like do all the, and I got a drill hat. It's like watching nukes run drills. Like it's like the same thing, except it's me and some MTs and like we're running around and sometimes an electrician and stuff. If we're doing stuff with certain, like pulling a, a fuse or um, popping a breaker or whatever, it's just like, you're okay. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go get the EDF. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's like I it was I never did my job on that boat. Thank God I had the world's greatest LPO because I like, dude, he was he was a leading CS. I, I was not doing my job on that boat. And I tell him that all the time. Like that, I gave him a set of anchors when I transferred and just like, dude, if you weren't here, I would have failed flat out. Like I there's no way I get through this tour successfully without you putting the brunt of my primary duty on your back. And that's not fair. But I like am really grateful that you were here because it like it's also not fair that I was doing all those other things instead of my job. But that's just how it goes down. Like it's it's just inescapable in a lot of ways. I think for that that CS chief we had, I think the intervention or whatever you want to call it that he had was probably, you know, coming from a good place. If it if that's what happened, you know, down chief scores again, that was just here save the E5 yeah. Mafia, you know. Right, but, right, right. Um, that was also the Chiefs quarters we had after our shipyard period, which mm. was another big turning point 
Um, again, I don't want to make it like too boat specific, but shipyard, I, I know for the whole crew, it's hard, but that's where I just saw nukes get absolutely yep. destroyed. Like, especially I, with, yeah. uh, we had the, the triad changed out. Mm-hmm. We had three cobs during a two year shipyard for various Yikes. reasons. Um, and then a lot of chief scores, like pretty much the entire chief scores turned over. But so we ended up going, like I said, when I first showed up, you know, you avoided chief's quarters, but the triad was really strong. And then when we came out of shipyard, the chiefs were really strong and the triad was not bad, but definitely could have been better. Yeah. But as far as that shipyard period goes, you know, getting back on the, uh, the whole thing about nukes being angry and everything like the work doesn't stop and shipyard for nukes, which I think yeah. is the biggest problem we have to deal with is that, you know, even when all the systems get turned off, you're still, you have to meet these training requirements and we have to go to the fighty, which is, yeah. you know, the shore side fake maneuvering where you go act like you're standing watch for a couple hours. Like, right. And then since you're not doing as much maintenance, you end up a lot of people getting bored and getting the good idea fairies and the Ooh. chain of command. But that's where, I think we saw the biggest problems with, um, again, as far as nukes go, like war on white space on the yeah. planet of days, a pretty common thing. And <laughs> I'm then, glad that's a universal term. Oh yeah. my God. I'll, I'll send you a picture after that. I, we had an egg anger that used to draw these pictures. You might've actually seen some of his stuff circulate. Um, I think trick shared one of them to, uh, he drew this flow chart. Uh, I'll send you some pictures, but it like, it was, basically out like how you get maintenance approved and it was like these little stick drawings it was hilarious but he had one <laughs> about a war on white space that he drew specifically for me because um i was one of the only people that would like not like one of the only uh chiefs that were like advocating for like not doing that like because it was ridiculous i'm like we're just shooting ourselves in the foot and then yeah. the crew gets no sleep and a lot of the stuff is is not necessary or it's at least not necessary to cram it in the way that we do so or yeah. even i think spacing it out is the bigger problem yeah. like yeah. when we went through shipyard we were you know you show up to work at 7 30 or whatever like normal stuff in the morning and then whatever little bit of maintenance we had and then you're just at work until 14 or 15 when they decide to make inch depth training happen and like everybody <laughs> has gross. to be there for inch depth training right so there's what probably three to five hours if you have yeah. maintenance in the morning where you're just sitting on the barge yep that's hanging out happen. and then that's when you get that you know random tasking and yep that should not and then happen. you go to go to inch depth training and then uh you have the you know the night work meeting which as far as I'm concerned that I work meetings should be work for the next day, but the way I've seen it end up being is the night work meeting is at 13 or 1400 mm-hmm. and your chief comes back and is like, all right, we got all this maintenance all to the do. stuff we got to do. Yeah. Get going. <laughs> what? Like, what are we doing tomorrow? Well, I don't really have anything planned. Like, yeah. Okay. Why is the obvious yeah. answer? Not, you know, the obvious answer, like do it tomorrow. Like, yeah. That's because they got yelled at by the end or CEO or XO or whoever at the meeting because they were supposed to do it and it didn't get, yeah, it's dude. Yeah. It's you're, you're relaying to me my own experience right now where it's like, it was the same thing, man. And it was a lot of it. And luckily we had certain leaders like that EDMC that would view it the way that 
kind of the way you do, where he was just like, it, if NJAP training has to be at fifteen hundred, I'm bringing my guys in at thirteen hundred, and th- and then we'll do that and do whatever we need to do, and then go home. Like it's yeah. not. He would figure out a way to mitigate some of the impacts so that your time's not being wasted. And it was just like it was logical and it made sense. And luckily, we had a cob that was open to those types of arguments. It was and really tr- based on how and some of it was just like him in combination with me and another department chief basically did his job for him in certain ways. I love him, but like, like we did. So he would just let this EDMC be a smart kid. And part of that's just him doing his job. Well, like why, why does he need to interject himself and make it his plan when he's got the world's best EDMC to just be a big brain and and do what he does. And it's like, he comes up with this really well thought out, organized color coded plan. And it's just like, yeah, let's do that. Like, you know, and that was what he would do. So it's not like I'm not like giving him a hard time. It was like he would let us do his job for him because why wouldn't he? Like, that's like why he had strong department chiefs. Like, so then the weapons guy would speak up and then I would speak up and we would come together and have a a great plan. And it would literally he'd walk in, we'd brief it. He'd be like, yep, sounds good. And then like, that's where and sometimes he would interject like, ah, CEO told me this. So we need to alter that or whatever. But the vast majority of the time, it was like a department chief driven plan and it would be, you know, pretty well thought out. And and like there were times where the crew, you know, like hem and awe about like, Oh, why are we doing this? Or why are we doing that that way? And it's like, we would try to explain it all to him. And sometimes it would be like the E five mafia would be right. And we'd be like, ah, damn. Yeah, no, we should have done that. You know? And it's like, and then next time we try to incorporate it and we weren't, I'm making it sound like we were like perfect and we were not, but it was like, we, I think we did it we tried to do it better and at least mitigate the impact because we still had the pressure of the upper chain of command. So like the Cobb did what he could to mitigate it, but didn't always win. And the COXO and department heads wanted to the war on white space. So we were fighting that like, so we would lose sometimes too. And it was like more than I wish we would have um, where we would end up with like the ridiculous stuff where that EDMC is mitigating the impact of a stupid plan. And it's like, he can only, you know, he's not the captain of the ship. He can only do so much. So um, they would, he would get told you're going to do this. And he's just like, you know, I sir and walk out and try to mitigate how much it's going to suck. So yeah, that was it. Yeah, I, I, I hate that. That's a, a universe. It feels like a universal concept. Yeah. I, I hope that, talks like that were going on in the chief's quarters on my first boat about, you know, trying to make things better, but it's just mm-hmm. the impression that a lot of us in NGDEP had was that they just kind of came up with the plan and we would offer input. And it was basically like, yeah, that, that sounds like an idea, but we're, we're going to do it like this. Like we already came up with this idea. Yeah. And, and I- that was just the, you know, like I said, just sticking around for yeah way longer than you show when your boat's dead electric and dry dock, especially for <laughs> electricians. Like we have yeah. no maintenance. We don't own any equipment. Shipyard's doing everything, but we're still going to yeah. be here till 1800 for, you know, Petty Officer Case, you know, just in case. Yeah. But, and that's largely probably just a cultural and leadership issue because like yeah. We were in dry dock and I had that one cob on my first chief's tour that he had a hard and fast rule for the entire submarine that like if you're day after duty, you're gone by 1300 unless it's cleared by me. Like there's no, you know, no reason why a day after duty person in dry dock should be here past 1300. Um, and then 
And I think he actually walked that back to earlier in the day at one point once he saw that we could accomplish it. And then the um, he told the shipyard, he's like, there will be no new work after 1500 ever. He's like, I don't care who, what it is, who it is. Like, if it's not cleared through my commanding officer, it's not happening. And so, and he would do it like he would do it. They, and they kept trying to do that because they were so, you know, they're so used to just being idiots and doing like doing that, like coming down and just surprising us with work. And then the ship's force guys on duty feel like they have to adapt and not sleep and like let them just do this work whenever they feel like doing this work. And so oh, yeah. he would, That's he would, the worst as people come and maneuvering at like, you know, 18, 1900, some shipyard worker comes down with the package. Right. Like, hey, I just want to get this, uh, you know, these tags going, start this maintenance. Like, yo, everybody's asleep. Like, yeah. And that's what he would, he empowered the supervisors. So like the duty chief, duty officer, engine duty pay officer, engine duty officer via the CO, obviously, but he empowered all them to tell those people no. And then the next day when he would find out about it via turnover, he would go up to the, like whatever they called the meeting with the shipyard at night work or whatever. I forget the name of the, what they called it here, but he would go up to that meeting and light them on fire. And it was just like, it was, it was like that advocacy that you always wish you'd had, but didn't think was real. Like he, and I give him, I joke with him about it and he gets a good laugh out of it all the time is I remember this one day really vividly where he, something like that happened and he went up to that meeting and like flame sprayed everybody. And the captain wasn't able to make it that day. For some reason he was like off doing some, something somewhere else at like squadron. And he comes back down and I remember really vividly for some reason I was like waiting on the cob. So I was standing there watching him explain this to the captain and he was like, sir, I just want to let you know when I went up to the meeting, I broke some dishes. And he goes like, what do you mean broke some dishes? <laughs> he goes, he goes uh, well, I kind of yelled at some people because this is any explained like the scenario where the guy, somebody I've told him and I've told him and I've told him and they still brought down like this maintenance last night at like 20 hundred and expected the crew to do it. And, and I think it was like the supervisory watch never got told. So then it was like the, the, you know, E fives just trying to accommodate this idiot. And then they didn't get sleep. And then this, yeah, whatever. Um, and so he lost his mind. On him and the CEO was just like laughing about the, and that like, you just broke some dishes. He's just like, yeah, I went up there and, uh, just so if you're going to get a, probably get a phone call and like just project supervisor or whatever. And he's like, yeah, I broke some dishes. So I'm just like, I just wanted you to know I like that line for you. Yeah. Before he got that phone. <laughs> and so like, and he doesn't even remember it because it's just a thing he said. He had one liners all day for stuff, but, uh, yeah, he said it was hilarious, but like he was he was that type of an advocate and we had a culture in the shipyard where it was like, if you're, if there's nothing going on, get your guys out of there. And so that's what I would do. And he would do this walk around at like 1500 to make sure the boat was clean. And it was like, so I would cut my guys out and I would stay and he would walk around. And if something wasn't clean, I cleaned it. And then I went home, but it was like, I'm not like, I have cooks here. Are you serious? Galley shut down. Everybody's on comrades. Like what? And I put the guys in the duty section and they would say like barge watch. And I, I had a couple guys that were qualified guns and would do like, you know, sentry or petty offset deck or whatever. Um, but it was, yeah, I'm like, why would I keep them here? There's nothing to do. Like if there's no mandatory training or mandatory, whatever, like yeah, I, w- I, we're in shipyard, dude. And like, and I had them yeah. going to school and going out in town and doing internships and going to other training. But yeah, I'm like, okay, I'll stay. Like, and that's what I did. And I'd just be there until he did his walk around. And I would usually be in my space when he was doing it. And I'd be like, you know, or walk around with him. And then if he's satisfied and there's nothing that needs to get fixed on the boat, I'm, I'm gone. Um, but yeah, it was, 
we accomplished what people should probably be doing anyway. And I, I, I've never, because on a BN, on a two crew submarine, we'll be the off crew submarines at sea. So we don't even have a submarine. Like there's no maintenance for anyone because there's no submarine, right? So all you have is trainers um, and everybody has them like missile techs have them. nukes have the fighty like uh, and they still got to do their engine up training and all that crap. So like they do that in a classroom in the in the building. Um, but largely like, you know, like guys can kind of work on quals and then they can do the fighty and whatever. I guess you could probably do some practice in there, I would imagine. And then. Yeah. Yeah, like edge depth training and stuff. So they can get like the academic checkouts. They can't really do like certain practice, I'm sure, and stuff like that. But they, they're working on guys are working on quals and then they're doing the required training and the fighty on Fridays. Usually that's how we did it anyway. I'm sure other people do it other days. But and then otherwise, like you'd see nukes like they'd be gone like that. You didn't see nukes past lunch. And it's just like unless they had to be there for something. And the same thing with the other divisions. It's like there. But the what would end up happening for a lot of people. And it was especially like weirdly, it was like the khakis JOs didn't go home till like 20 hundred dude. Like you'd see department heads that, like in their offices, super late. You would see um, like meetings, training, all this other crap going on that it was like the plan of the week was always packed with crap. And it's just like, we're, we don't have a submarine right now. Like, what are we doing? And I had, we had a CO that was pretty good um, about like, he would, he would like front load like three day, four day weekends. He would try to get everybody time off. But at the same time, I mean, there was like, there was always a war on white space and it was really strange to see. And it's just like a lot of this stuff is self-inflicted. Like, yes, there are requirements. Um, and there's probably more requirements on a BN for a lot of other divisions that don't exist on fast boats, but still, man, like just absurd, like the number of trainers, the number of like formal trainings and classrooms, a number of other reasons we would invent to just not be home. Like it was insane. Yeah. yeah we, we had plenty of, I mean, like, like I said, the engine up as a whole on my first boat, we had plenty of angry yeah. bitter guys just about the way the culture was and then ended up actually having a almost edge depth wide uh at least drb most people end up going to drb because we all got really? in trouble um yeah I, mean, I, I can tell you like more about that later but okay uh there's a thing that a lot of the nukes were doing that probably shouldn't have been doing yeah um like stand and watch and stuff but end up sending most of the department to DRB and uh, I mean, that's just like a whole nother point outside of like wire nukes better, but yeah. DRBs in general, at least the two I've been to were just disgusting. Like, yeah, I was going to ask a bunch that. of, yeah. yeah, it's just a bunch of like grown men just yelling at you and not actually yeah. asking any questions. And you try to make a point and they just shoot it down. And like, yeah, if your mind's already opposite. made up that we're going past this, then right. Why What's are we the point? Here? Like, <laughs> yep. polar polar opposite of what it's supposed to be. So it's yeah. supposed to be a, a f kind of a fact finding mechanism, but like w what it really should be when it's at its best is like so it because it is a mechanism of like the the preliminary inquiry and it and part of it is like should it go should it get recommended for XY and, and mast or or whatever. Um, but the fact finding piece of it should really be 
like we've identified that you you're at least being uh, investigated. And then at that point, generally, the preliminary inquiry is done. So you're being accused of violating an article of the UCMJ generally. At least that's how it's supposed to work. You shouldn't be like doing DRBs without that process having happened and arriving at the conclusion that, yes, I'm referring this to captain's mass. And even with the the PIO making that recommendation, the cheese course could still then make the recommendation that, yeah, no, I actually think you could dismiss this at DRB or XOI. Um, what should happen is when they walk in there, like the, the accusation has already happened. So we already know, like you may or may not have done this thing on or about this date and it's in violation, or we think that that thing, if, if you did in fact do it is in violation of this UCMJ article or whatever. So when they go in there, it's like, okay, we're here. We know why we're here. We suspect you've done this thing. So like, why are we here? Like, how did you arrive at a place where you did this thing or, you know, didn't do this thing? And like, generally, if we're at DRB, you've you've done something like something went wrong and there's a something that needs to get resolved. But it's like what should be happening is identifying like whatever need that sailor has that was not met that led them to the decision making process that are led them to then violate the UCMJ or not. Right. Like they did something, yeah. whether or not it violated the UCMJ is kind of a separate thing that the preliminary preliminary inquiry addresses. And you review all that and you, you know, like you based on your questions um, that you have for that sailor, you also kind of like try to shed some light on that. But I'm, I'm almost less concerned. Like I, I want to get to the bottom of like, did they do it or not? Um, which that's a mechanism of it. But a lot of times you're you're there because like Sailor X gets a DUI. Like I got paperwork. There's not it's not a question of if you got a DUI at that point or like if somebody got in a fist fight and like there's witnesses like you could deny it. But like I know you punched a guy in the face. So like <laughs> I, I don't need to talk about that at that point. It's not going to do any any good, really. Like I know it happened. I want to know why. Like I want to know how you arrived at a place where you were so angry that you thought the right move was to punch another guy in the face on the submarine, knowing that it's contrary to the UCMJ and all those other things. Like I'm less concerned about that. You're that you made that mistake and more concerned about why you made that mistake and what I can do to address the needs that you have so that that problem doesn't happen again in the future. And that is one thing that I was really proud of on my last submarine. And I I honestly think we did it pretty well on the one before that too. We had a really strong chief's quarters on my first boat. Well, my first chief's tour anyway. Um, and, on my last boat, even like there was a lot of things that we didn't do as well as I thought we should, but DRBs were not one. Like we did a, our DRBs were done really well. And I mean, there were some moments where some things happened that probably shouldn't have, but it wasn't like that where it went off the rails and it was just people screaming because like if that happened, I would have told the sailor to step out and I would have started destroying chiefs because like it was Cobb and then May seniority wise, even though EDMC positionally is generally viewed as the most senior guy. Like I was way senior to everybody except for Cobb. Um, and so I would assert that type of like seniority. I just feel like I would have shot, I would have told the guy to step out and started lighting people on fire. So it never really went that way. And it's just because we had a really great group of people that actually cared about these sailors, whether or not they believed that or not, like, cause there are some chiefs that in certain, like certain ways weren't great at at conveying that. So they, their sailors might not have thought that Uh, I think largely they probably did, or at least understood 
kind of like in the same way you described the lanyard guy, like, like because he did stuff like that, you knew he cared. Maybe not in everyday practice. It wasn't well communicated, but you knew, you know, like you knew. Um, but yeah, I mean, like when we would go into those DRBs, there wasn't usually a lot of yelling unless we got lied to and we knew it or um, it was like we would get like the attitude of like, you know, going us like telling us to go F ourselves without actually saying it. When you get that kind of a reaction or like no yeah. remorse or, or whatever, where they weren't like they weren't going in, the, in there and a- answering things honestly or allowing us to like to help them. And it, so it, you'd get kind of frustrated, like, like, look, we're not we're not here to like kick you while you're down. Like we're here to try to get to the bottom of why you're here so that we can address the problem at, so that you're not here again, like in a month, like we want to fix it. Go So going forward, you have the ability to deal with this productively next time. And so that was, that's how it should be. And it's, I, I agree that it's disgusting when it degenerates into that. It should not degenerate into that. Um, and th- very, very rare occasions, moments like that, are calculated and it's more theater than actual like them being that upset um because i'll tell you there's moments at in drbs where i I, like i've lit somebody up and it wasn't because i was actually angry it's because i thought they needed that type of stimulus to finally start. and then you know like you walk it back and explain it and you know like or, or sometimes i use the example of like there was a chief that did something stupid he was a brand new chief but i had a chief do something real stupid um and I actually just ran into this dude the other day. Um, and, and I mean, we're on good terms and he was happy to see me and said hi. And we talked for a little bit. But uh, at the time, he did something real dumb. With a junior sailor, um, put him in a position they shouldn't have said something. He shouldn't have like just a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, I got relieved. I was on watch at the time and I got a relief so that I could go get him in the chief's quarters. And I like I was so angry. I was shaking. And I was screaming at this dude and I told him to go apologize to the junior sailor. Like, like, how dare you do you know what I mean? Like it was one of those types of conversations where he just, yeah. he talked to a junior sailor and put them like told them to go do a thing that put them in the most awkward spot on the planet. And it like really inappropriate. And like, just, it was one of those like red lines that you don't cross. And uh, so, yeah, I just just absolutely annihilated this guy, kicked him out of the chief's quarters, told him to come back and report to me when it was done, like that kind of stuff. And it was one of those things that it was like because he was a chief was a big part of why I was screaming, but also because he crossed a red line with a junior sailor. And it's like you don't get that back. Like even if you apologize and like that, that never goes away. Like that sailor's interaction with a chief is going to affect all their further interactions with chiefs for the rest of their career. And hopefully their context and like their, uh, the judgment that they pass on chiefs as a whole, as like an organization is informed by good chiefs and it overwhelms that one negative experience, but that's always going to inform their experience. Like forever, you never get that back. Even if you rehab your relationship with that sailor, that net, that interaction that's burnt that scars there forever like that burned into their memory so it's like when stuff like that happens where you've just made it harder for every chief that's ever existed that will like every chief that is going to exist in their timeline right every chief that 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 sailor ever interacts with is going to have a harder time getting that sailor to trust them because of you and the stupid thing you just did 
And I was like, so I lost it. And I'm, I mean, I was shaking. I was so mad. And when he came back down, I was still really spun up. And so I told him, like, I started to talk, like to, to, to like walk it back. And, but then I was still, I'm like, I'm still so mad. I need to walk away, but you're going to stay in here. And, you, and there was like a, a couple department chiefs and some other chiefs staying in there that had been there for the whole thing. And I explained to them what exactly what happened and, uh, and who and why and whatever while he was gone apologizing. And then when he came back, I'm like, you're going to sit in here and talk this through with the rest of these chiefs until you fully understand what happened. And then we'll talk about it some more like later when I get off watch. Um, but those are the, t- the only times where I think it is appropriate to like fire for effect. You know what I mean? Like, cause yeah, stuff like that is, is warranted. Yeah. The, the vast majority of the time, like, yeah, especially juniors too. Like it's just different. Cause that was yeah. a chief that I was screaming at. Like, yeah, it's different. Like we, pulling a second class in there where they do like, cause I've always kind of like tags being the, the biggest one. Cause there was a whole bunch of work controls issues and procedure violations. And it's like, when is it ever appropriate to pile on there? Cause it's like, okay, well, why do we have a tag out violation? It's not because they don't know how to do tags the vast majority of the time. It's because they're sleep deprived. It's because they're like pissed off and have low morale. It's because like what, like a million things, like they got racked out to do this item, like whatever it is, it's generally not because the person doesn't know how to do tags. And yeah. so what's the real issue here? Let's figure it out. Let's address that because layering another burdensome administrative requirement on top of all of the other burdensome administrative requirements to correct the issue is never productive. And it uh, like you generally you'll see like a tag out violation happen and then the corrective measures are getting layered on after the critique lead to more consecutive tag out violations. And they're like, all right, we have a cultural problem now. It's like, no, yeah, the only cultural problem is you can't lead your way out of a wet paper bag like this, like <laughs> address the actual problem instead of going to criti- a critique, identifying a bunch of symptoms of a problem that you're too narrow to grasp and then like oh okay so now we're just gonna like put out these little fires here and there instead of figuring out why things are bursting into flames you know what i mean like it just never computes to me and that's what i see happen a lot of the times and it just drives me nuts because it's like you're not you're not addressing the actual problem yeah that was my um was my second drb experience was over a tag out violation which Mm. like you're saying just you know getting racked out or whatever i was running into my limited amount of time to sleep for the mid watch. I got told to go hang like two tags and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll go hang them. It's not a big deal. And I hung it on a little fuse panel that had probably 20 sets of fuses on it. And the only difference between where I should have hung the mm-hmm. tag and where I did was that it was a 28 volt instead of 125 volt yeah. fuse. The fuse nomenclature was the same, but yeah. It was the first one I saw scanning down the panel and everything yep. matched except for the voltage. So I hung it. I went to DRB for that once they found it on the audit the next day. And the DRB actually started off very reasonable. Yeah. You know, they were like, what happened? You know, I told them, they're like, okay, you know, basically like, don't do that. You could have hurt somebody. I was like, yeah, I get it. Like, I, I feel really bad about it. But then in the middle of talking about it, the sonar tech uh, chief that had just shown up probably a day or two before that, like he was like new, new on board. Walks so clearly, in the, clearly the guy that should have spoke up, but yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I think he was just trying to make a name for himself or something. Yeah, something. But he, he walks into chief's quarters when I'm talking about my normal process to hang tags. And I said, I usually 
bounce back and forth between the tag and the component, verify word for word, everything matches up and then, you know, hang it, sign the tag, sign the sheet, move on. And I was in the middle of explaining that and he cuts me off and was like, yeah, did you guys hear that? He said, usually he verifies the tag. That means he doesn't do it every time. And the whole room was just like, oh yeah, God. you're right. And it just oh my God. Totally Shut switched. Up. <laughs> That's, so that bad. would have been like the, you'd hear the record scratch and the music stop. And I'd be like, <laughs> EMN2, please step out. And that yeah. guy would get his <laughs> face melted. Like, is your checkout sheet done? Shut the, shut up. Like, yeah. shut your mouth. You don't even know the kid's name. Shut up. Like, yeah, like I was, what is wrong with you? I was mildly impressed because my first DRB uh, was so messy. And so the second one was like, oh, they're like actually asking oh, questions. Oh, yeah, this is and going this guy pretty was well. Just yeah. To, <laughs> yeah, prove himself or some, I don't know. But, I would have. Because that like what, what's productive about that at all? Like, really? I mean, I, you're going to. I wasn't a fan of him for the rest of the time on board. So I guess he got that done. <laughs> I'm shocked. Um, yeah. I mean, like walk like. That's what I, I, I'll never, it's professionally embarrassing to me when I hear stories like that. And, and even when like, cause I, I try to be fair about it. And I, based on all of the, like the Reddit threads and the Facebook messages and the emails and the Instagram messages. And then the people I talk to, like the conglomeration, it's like, even if 10% of it's true in both like volume and severity, it's so wrong. Like it's yeah. even if, even if 10% of what I'm re- being relayed is true, we got a problem. And it's just like, why? I, and it's like, I know. Cause like, it's kind of what we talked about earlier. It's like, I know what the, what the root cause is like the, it's a lack of leadership development and education, which is why I, I'm talking into this microphone right now. But like it's, and it, it goes all the way back to like, it's not just the leaders that are, are in that DRB. Like it's the, it gets to a point where we're the blind leading the blind. And I, and I, a lot of times when I say things like this, I feel like I'm, I'm harshly criticizing an organization I love. And I, I want to make sure that everyone understands that I include myself in this criticism is, is that just because I fancy myself like a leadership development guy, it's like, it doesn't mean that I haven't one screwed these things up. Like there are sailors in the fleet that would tell stories about me that like would make you think I'm the worst chief ever. And that too, I just like, I take ownership of the fact that we have this problem and that I'm a part of the problem in some ways. And I, I take accountability for the fact that the problem exists and we need to fix it as an organization. And that I'm part of that organization. But it, it maddens me that like, it, it just feels like the recognition exists, but isn't acknowledged of like that we have the problem because I talk to a lot of chiefs that listen to this podcast and I haven't had a single one of them disagree with this this sentiment that we have this problem, that uh, those types of things happen, that they don't like when they happen. So it's like you, you wonder how much of it is like mob mentality where it's like some some clown like him walks into a DRB and says something stupid like that. And everybody else is like, uh, OK, I guess we're agreeing with it. You know what I mean? Like and they just kind yeah. of conform and it, and it drives me nuts that it's that simple. Uh, or that it's that easy for them to accomplish that those types of, of like bad actors, which I would venture to guess again. And this is a thing I talk about a lot too, is, is that I bet you that sonar tech chief's not a bad guy. 
He's just an immature, underdeveloped leader. Not that there are definitely dudes that are probably sociopaths out there. Like there are definitely bad, bad leaders, like like just bad people that shouldn't even be allowed to wear a uniform to work. Like those people are real, but they're really rare. Like the vast majority of the leaders that that sailors like you encounter, like chiefs and officers that that you think are just really god awful leaders. It's like it's true. They're probably not great leaders, but it's because they're underdeveloped, undereducated, undertrained, not fully qualified to do that job, like thrust into a position they weren't even a little ready for, uh, never prepared for it, never qualified to do it. Like it's so and then the the people that are in charge of like supervising them and holding them accountable for when they're not doing their job correctly, also underqualified, underage. Yeah, you know I mean, like, and it just yeah. perpetuates all the way up. So, what you find is like, they, I've I've sat in a lot of, of chiefs messes where I'm having conversations with chiefs and they're they really they have a genuine desire uh, to do what's best for their sailors and to like develop them and see them succeed and and like kind of do all the things that you would expect of a leader. They just don't know how to do it. And there's a, a famous line. I think it was, I don't want to say it was Nimitz, but I think I'm wrong where they said you'll regret like when you're, I think maybe it was okay. I don't know. I'll have to look it up, but I'm probably super off. But like the quote is basically uh, that when you're under like a great deal of stress, you're going to regress back to your lowest level of training. So from my experience, like when I was always the guy running my mouth, talking about how stupid my chief was, how my LPO sucked, like how when I could do it better right now. Um, and like when I knew when I was in that role, I was going to crush it. Right. And then I show up to my second summary and then I'm the LPO and I did a lot of dumb stuff, man. Like I, tell a story all the time about how I was, I thought I was just a guy with high standards and like these guys were not doing it right. And I was going to go in there and show them what's up and just raise the bar and make them meet me there. And you know what I mean? Like, and, and, and just force compliance and like, they're just going to be awesome because I'm awesome. You know what I mean? And like <laughs> I went in there and I vividly remember this one day where I'm in the galley yelling, like I got them all in there and I'm yelling at them about something. And I just, I mean, I'm 30 seconds in and that's probably uh, generous. Like it was very quickly. I watched every single one of their eyes glaze over their brains completely shut off because, oh, CS1's in here yelling at us again. Whatever. Like we'll just weather the storm and then go back to what we were doing. And I like I'm in there yelling at him. I'm 30 seconds in and I just stopped and I'm just like looking at him. And I'm like in my mind, I didn't even say anything in my mind. I'm just like they're not, they just shut off. They're not even listening to me. They don't, they're tuned out. Like they, and I, and I like had flashbacks of when I was where they are doing exactly what, what they were doing because they were just getting screamed at constantly. And I'm like, what am I doing? And I literally, I'm just like, and I just walked out of the galley. Like I just left. I'm just like, and they're like, they were super confused. And I like, I went and just kind of reevaluated my whole life basically where I was just like, what am I? What have I become? You know what I mean? Like, and, and realized that like, okay, I can't do this. And like, so I was, what am I doing wrong? How do I fix it? Went and talked to some chiefs that I actually trusted and that, and it, I mean that boat, I, it was really great chiefs quarters. I just, didn't realize that yet until I was promoted and then got to be a part of it. But there was a handful that at the time I really trusted because uh, my chief was not good. 
and a uh, great guy just should have never made chief um and it like started to clarify a little bit of it and i started to fix those things and as i realized that like that's not how you do it i i was able to kind of get through to them better and they started to trust me more and realized i was changing based on what i saw and how i evaluated my own behavior and they probably attributed a lot to it was my doc it was a guy that i thanked when i transferred for he spent a lot of time on me like basically being my proxy chief just because my chief was so weak and he was a senior chief that was just amazing dude um but i think that like i i experienced this this process myself and I just got really lucky that on that submarine, I then made chief not long after that and got to stay there as the chief. And it was, you know, like a special projects platform where everybody volunteered to be there. All those type A, just awesome, high performing, high functioning chiefs with a lot of experience. There were a lot of very senior people that were like almost all of them were on their second LCPO tour or their senior chiefs that are on their department chief tour after an LCPO tour. So they like very experienced, very like the depth and breadth of knowledge was ridiculous. Like it was like being at chief university. And so I left there with a really solid foundation and I, I lucked into that. And I, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have maybe eventually arrived at, at being a, a quality leader at some point, but I think it would have took, I think it would have taken me longer. And I would think I think there would have been like more bumps in the road to me figuring it out or find, going and seeking out the type of mentorship that I got there. I got lucky and was just happened to be on that boat with those people. Yeah, and to get like the jump start on it. Yeah, to get the and I think it was really important that it happened that early. And I think the fact that I was a brand new chief in that senior of a, of a quarters was like. I don't know that I'm stubborn, man. I think I'm right a lot. And like, so I don't know if I would have been so willing to receive all of the, the knowledge and mentorship that I got from those people. Had I not been the most boot chief in the room, you know what I mean? Like I just, it yeah. just happened the way it had to happen. And I got really lucky and I don't think a lot of people get that. And it's, it's how you end up with those that type of leadership. It's how you end up with a guy that does that in a DRB. It's how you then end up with a group of people that don't have the backbone to stand up to that and be like, well, shut up. Like you're new. Like who you don't even know this guy. Like, cause that's the, what should have happened. I mean, I would have the ex, a, most appropriate version of that would have been asking you to step out and hoping you don't hear it through the door. But like, <laughs> I mean, I would have, that dude would have gotten hit chin checked immediately. I'd have been like, I'm you know, sorry, I, who, who are you? Like, what are you new here? Shut up. Like, why I are you opening to, your mouth? I had to That's ask my chief who me. he was afterwards. Like yeah. when I walked out of the DRB, went back over to the EDIV space and I was like, yo, it's like, you know, new sonar chief, you know, what's his face? And like, oh yeah, that dude just showed up. And I told him about what happened. He was like, oh, that sucks. Which, why we was could have another talk about there? Like, yeah, like, okay. We could have another talk about like my specific boat stories like i do want to kind of get yeah. back on the nuke stuff because i got like, for sure more yeah points, sorry but, yep you know we could do another talk about i have plenty of stories from that first but it was yeah. such a bad place but can jingle some car keys at me once in a while and i'll get back on track <laughs> but uh, i i always wondered like because the way i've always and i don't know how much leeway an edmc has with or an engine edmc have with like the training i know i know you have a required number of hours and sessions and stuff like that but like it how like and I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but like how much leeway do the, those people have in developing even like a training and proficiency plan 
as far as like, so if I, if I assess, if I, so like, let's pretend I'm an EDMC. If I assess the engineering department as needing training in the following areas, am I able to develop a training plan that addresses those weak spots that I've identified and just create a plan that checks the hours and like sessions block? Or do you have to do a certain number of like, like we have to train on like, I don't know, like, uh, fucking, I don't, I don't even know what you get, like, uh, <laughs> ELT stuff. Like I have to do like a certain number of hours on the chemistry and I would do a certain number of hours on, I don't know, like startups. And I, yeah, you know I mean, like, is there, is there like a, you guys just go through the same training plan to check the same boxes to get the same number of hours to meet all the requirements of the book? Or is there leeway there where they get to, they get to meet the requirements for hours and sessions and whatever, by addressing weaknesses and then maybe there's just some general proficiency training. Is that, is that kind of, how does that work? I, I'm just like, um, so I'm, I'm not sure about this. that there's like a, like an hourly requirement or anything, yeah. but I mean, I know, you know, we do training once or twice a week, depending on, you know, if you're a supervisor, you have to go to two sessions and then you have yeah. your divisional training. So at least two or three trainings a week, but there are, hard like written in stone requirements yeah from the engineering department uh manual i think is where they come from mm-hmm. but it says you know for all of engdep you will train on you know these handful of topics you know in a quarter in a year and then divisions have specific ones okay yeah so but there you, are some yeah yeah but you can have you know like like you said like weak spot training like there's there's room to be able to do okay you know um i guess command specific training or like yeah for uh for ediv we would do a lot of chief selected topics which would usually just end up being our chief trying to figure out why we don't know electrical theory <laughs> <laughs> so how badly does it become like because that where i was going with this was how badly does it become like repetitive boring like not oh, really age. quickly yeah, because that's what I the, just with the volume of training I see you guys do. Yeah, it seems like it's just like like just blow my brains out like this death by PowerPoint talking about and then you guys got the exams and all this. Other, it's like, yeah. Yeah, once you're on board for about uh, a year, year and a half, if you actually oof. keep up with your notebook, you know, like don't lose it or whatever. And yeah, um, you can pretty much just find the training everything's you in know there, yeah. last time you did it six <laughs> months ago or whatever and just open back up to that page and yeah. add notes if you need it i just because i never understood the the there's so much layered on top of each other and it's like i get it i what you guys do is is complicated and the and the things need to be trained on so the proficiency exists and stuff but it's just like there's so much of it that i it seems like overkill i guess is probably the best way of putting it is like i i understand that there needs to be a certain level of it done it needs to be regimented it needs to be repeated it needs to be tested on and valid like i i understand the concept and like the probably the goals they're trying to accomplish i just i always i just always marveled at how much time and effort and and I don't know, like bandwidth and man hours, whatever were spent on that type of stuff. And it never, 
not never, but like the vast majority of the time you'd walk by and you just look, everybody wanted to be anywhere, but the training they were at. And it was just yeah. like, so how productive is it? And then they're taking an exam on stuff. They barely paid attention to. And a lot of people weren't doing well on the, the CTE exams. And it, I mean, I guess it's just a CTE because E means exam. So I'm that guy. I mean, it's um, like cat card. That's eh, fine. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but like, there's, but I, I, presumably a bunch of nukes are going to listen to this and they're going to judge me. So I'm glad I caught my own <laughs> error. But uh, yeah, it's like I don't I, I guess I never understood um, the volume. And I, I know it's dictated by like naval reactors but good lord like you'd think i mean not that you'd think a lot would be gained by by adding efficiencies and by that i mean like taking some of it out like and changing some of the requirements to make more sense um and be based on more modern like instructional theory and and educational theory it's just like that's not the best way to learn is to sit on the mess decks and flip through a PowerPoint and have somebody drone on in a monotone voice at a, at a training. They don't even want to be leading, let alone attending. Yeah. And you guys, you're just checking the box to check the box because the EDM says so. And it's like, eh, what can we could do better? Like, why are we doing it this way? Because it's clearly not productive to the, to the flavor of, and this is my favorite, favorite, like nuclear resources. Uh, Paul Kingsbury. He's a retired fleet mass chief that was a surface nuke electrician. And he is wrote an article that was very unpopular when he was a fleet mass chief about the like the nuclear cheating scandal that happened. Uh, surface fleet, I think. I think we've had like submarine force, I think, has had some of that, too. But there's a big cheating scandal that I think was mostly surface based. There's one in the uh, one at the school types a while right? ago. Yeah. 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 And this was. It might, he might have been talking about that. Or I don't know if that was after he retired or not, but I, I think there was one that was it was out in the fleet that was really like widespread. But e- either way, it was one of the cheating scandals with the exams. And, and his contention was this isn't a, an integrity issue. This is in order to keep up and not hate their entire life. They decided it was easier to do this than it was to like study in earnest and still do everything else and maintain their integrity and maintain their physical and mental health because you can't do everything. Like you can't like genuinely meet the requirements and uh, like do a good job at everything else and sleep like you and take care of your physical health and have any type of off time to like watch a movie, like do something else to decompress. Um, and pursue other qualifications and whatever. So it's like his contention. And he wrote an article about it when he was a fleet was like, this is our fault. Like we did this because we've created this insane, unattainable like standard of, of like, you have to do, you have to qualify all these things. You have to stand watch. Well, you have to maintain proficiency. You have to go to all these trainings. You have to take these exams. You have to pass these exams. You have to be a good trainer and, and be available to give those checkouts to all those people for the quality. Like, and, and on and on it goes. It's just like, it's it, you can't do all of those things and maintain your integrity and maintain your mental and physical health. It's impossible. So that yeah. and like it, apparently it was really unpopular when he when he wrote it and he got a lot of got a lot of crap for it. But also it's true. Like it's you because I, I see that bleeding into the forward compartment of the submarine. And like I can tell you when I went to a BN uh, after doing a chief's tour on a, a special projects boat, 
I thought it was going to be the easiest thing I ever did in my life. Like, I was like, yeah, this is like submarining light. Like it's going to be, it's going to be check. Cause that's all I'd ever heard about BNs. It's like, you know, um, and when I got there, like I, I, you know, in certain ways, like like that boat was the, the project's boat was extremely difficult. Um, but it was in different ways. Like I can tell you, like the tour I did on that BN was harder in a lot of ways. And that shocks a lot of people when I say that because of the reputation of the project's boat. It's like, it's, it was a lot of it was self-inflicted. A lot of it was mismanaged war on white space stuff, but it was a lot of it was the requirements had just changed. And a lot of things evolved in a way where it seemed like, like the same type of model was being applied to what we were doing in the fork apartment. Like when you looked at the plan of the week and you looked like, looked at what we were doing, it was most of it wasn't nuclear driven unless we had a, an ORS coming up on that patrol. It was, like it was like middle of the boat related, like strat stuff. Like we're going to do like fake play launch missiles, like stuff like that. Um, or it was, we're going towards like a, they call them crease now, like the TRE stuff, like the tactical stuff. Like we're all this stuff that you're just like, what are we doing? Like, that's not even our mission, but okay. We need to be proficient at it. But like, the type of stuff where it's like people are just getting overwhelmed with the amount of things they need to do, qualify, stay proficient at, train on, like create whatever, like to have meetings on, do uh, chalk talks and freaking like tabletops and like whatever other stupid like mechanism you could come up with to just destroy everyone's ability to balance anything ever. Like it was you were just in constant conflict. Where like, why am I at, in a building when there's no submarine and it's 1700, 1800 on a weekday? Like, why am I leaving here as the sun's going down? Like there's no, uh, submarines not even present. And we've, we've gone so far high into the right with a lot of this stuff that it's just like, I can't really, I don't even have a submarine to worry about. And I'm going home at 1800. Like, how is this real? How are we this bad at managing time, people, resources? Like, it's I, I've seen seen a lot of that bleed over into the forward half of the submarine too, and it's just like it is not the move, especially with manpower, yeah. like issues continuing to compound, and like it, it's. I mean, I, I like to think we're at, you know, hopefully some kind of turning point about yeah managing people and stuff, but it's. I think everybody also knows like it's it's going to take a while now that people are starting to be a little more vocal or a little more concerned about it. Yeah, I I think um, so. The and like ELD stuff that I I think I mentioned it earlier. Um, I don't know if we we're recording at the time because we had the glitch, but um, it, it there's good signs where it's like it looks like big navy is at least um, like passively thinking that oh yeah hey we need to improve on that you know and like and it's a great step in the right direction. I've heard really good things about it. I haven't gotten new experience yet. I had a a facilitator course scheduled and then uh, I had a conflict where I had to travel for work. And so I sent some other people in my place, but I, I'm going to get to one of those classes soon. And then I'm going to have some people on podcasts that will shed some light on it as well for, for me and everyone. Cause um, I want to know more about it and where it's going and what the goals are and all that stuff. But um, it's, I don't think they recognize it as the issue that it actually is. Like, I don't think that, um, it's like the severity and, and, and 
urgency uh, of a solution like is is understood like that like no really like we really need to like act like this is an emergency like we yeah. re- we really need to accept that uh the state of our like leadership mechanisms and just like the state of like how we prioritize uh like leadership the understanding of uh, the study of and we how we prioritize it as like a, a training objective, like an, a, tr- a need that like a thing that we need to spend time on. And I, I even hesitate to say training because I, I think education is more appropriate, but um, that we need to spend more time on that. And I was talking to uh, the dudes over at Test Step. There are a couple sub vets that got out after their first boats. And one guy stayed for a short duty, I think. But the guy I generally talked to is he got out as, I think, an FT2. Um, and I told, I made a comment that if I like, be, be the last thing I would get rid of if I was like deleting schools would be like leadership stuff. And he goes, Whoa, that's a bold statement. You know what I mean? And, and I, and I went on this rant about how like everything I need to like, uh, train, qualify and keep proficient all of the, the, the necessary functions of fighting a submarine at sea are on the submarine. Like we won a world war without a dive and drive trainer. So, and I'm not saying that those things aren't amazing, and important additions to our ability to do things better than we did and and continue to improve. And like, I love the fact that I can operate in a dive and drive trainer and not actually mud dart a submarine. Like I can go in there yeah. and pretend to be the dive and do things wrong, or even better, I can pretend to be the dive. They can insert casualties and I can actually feel what it would be like to recover from a jam dive. And it's wild. It's like a bad carnival ride. And it's like, you're like, you're like freaking out. Like, Oh my God. Like, cause like it's really doing the thing. And it's like, it's, yeah, it's not like hydraulics or something. Oh like, yeah. Right? That tilts it around yep. and- throwing you around like a roller coaster. <laughs> and it's like, and you're, and your blood gets up. Like you react like, you know, uh, probably 60, 70% of what you would, if it was real life, if not all the way, like you, yeah. you kind of forget that it's a simulation and you freak out and you're like, your blood's up and you're, you're, like having a hard time recognizing all the indications sometimes having a hard time make, making the right decisions. Remember where I, what the, what the call is, like what your immediate actions are uh, identifying like that maybe uh, like you're trying to do a thing and, and another indication is bad or, or whatever. Um, but it's being able to do those things and, and do them in a trainer where there's no real consequences is amazing. However, if I were, if I just deleted everything else because there was like a funding issue, the last thing I would get rid of is leadership development and education. And it's because the biggest problems that we have can be traced back to that as a root cause. We just generally don't trace it back to that. We trace it back to like you were talking about the, the tag out thing. What really happened was you got racked out and you wanted to help and said, yeah, it's not a big deal. I can do it without recognizing that like, no, really you shouldn't be doing that because one, it's cutting into your sleep time for the midwatch. And two, you're not awake, alert and ready to do that the best you can possibly do. And it's an important function. And 
also the supervisory element thought it would was somehow appropriate to rack out the guy that's sleeping for the midwatch to hang those tags, allowed it to happen, allowed you to be in that position in the first place, allowed you to think that that was okay, and then started up like a, an accountability mechanism for that happening. The first question that should always get asked is you'd like your chief should be looking in a mirror and going like, what did I do? Like, how did I fail EMN2? in this moment that allowed him to ever be in that position in the first place. Like, what did I do wrong? And then the whole supervisory element should be asking that, like, what did we screw up? And that almost never happens. And it's like, well, well, why, why is that not like, did I, did I train him correctly? Did I fully qualify him when I, when he was going through like quals to do whatever, whatever, stand, whatever watch or hang tags or whatever. Did we train, educate and qualify him appropriately? Does he understand that it was a bad idea to do it on the midwatch? Does he understand that like him getting racked out on the midwatch wasn't the move? Like, cause why did like, besides you just wanting to help, like why did you jump out of your rack in that moment? Instead of saying like, really one, it doesn't have to get hung right now. And two, is this really the best answer you want to rack me out to do? Like, like, empowering you to say no in that moment like that was yeah big- i mean we were we were also in a bad spot where like we didn't have a lot of people qualified tags like right. i think i was one of two wire rates in that that duty section but okay um, still but like okay so why weren't there people qualified to, to hang tags did a bunch a of people work controls issues yeah i was gonna say did a bunch of people evaporate yeah. or did we just do a bad job of making sure that that we had enough people that were qualified and trained and w- or whatever to to because like honestly like if we get to a point where there's only two people qualified because everybody else was removed from doing it because we had a bunch of work controls issues that's a leadership failure like if, if that's happening at that scale that we only have two people that can do it and i got it that it's just the duty section but like if we're in the type of a place where we have to rack you out when you're sleeping for the midwatch to hang a tag, the the fact that we arrived at that scenario is a leadership failure. That's not a you failure. So like the real like root cause there is that we failed as leadership to build depth in the bench and ensure we had enough people that were qualified, a process in place that allowed for people to do it correctly, to, to catch failures. Like, so if a second checker catches that uh, the first checker didn't sign, that's not a DRB. That's not necessarily even a critique. That's the process worked. And we talk about it. We share the lessons learned and we say good job and we move on with life. And on good boats, that's what you see happen. On bad ones, you see a guy like you going to DRB for something like that. And the it shouldn't happen that way. And the reason why you probably didn't have enough people qualified is because they were dealing with the issues incorrectly. They weren't dealing with them constructively. They were blaming the guy that got racked out on the midwatch to hang a tag because there weren't enough people qualified. That's bullshit. That's not how that should be happening. And that's the problem. But we don't address it that way. We address it by layering on a, an upgrade or sending you to a DRB or whatever. And then that leads uh, to you having future issues because like, the, okay, I, I do my job correctly. I get, I get, I have to do multiple like extra administrative steps. I do my job incorrectly. I have to do even more well, like multiple like administrative burdens and steps and an upgrade. And I have to go to DRB. It's like, so no matter what I do, it's going to suck. So what 
what person on planet Earth is going to be like motivated, focused, engaged, like worried about doing a good job, like any of those things when they're put in that position, they're going to get racked out in the midwatch and be like, oh, God, really? OK, fine. Give me it. And they're going to go find the thing. And oh, yeah, that looks right. Hang the tag, make a mistake and then end up at DRB because their leadership failed them. And it just maddens me. Yeah. I mean, we'd, like I said, we were just in general in a real dark spot in NGDEP. Like, got plenty of stories about stuff that definitely could have been done in a much easier way on that boat. Yeah. No, man, I get it. I, th- I think everybody does. And yeah, it's unfortunate, man. Like, it's unfortunate that that's, that's real. And I know, like, a lot of, like, to be fair, I think a lot of it's driven by the way that it's like the, it'd be like NR, like it'd be like the highest level. Like it's driven by the way the the system is set up. And I just wonder like how much discussion happens and feedback is provided that, that like the feedback provided driving the discussion about like these types of things at that level. I'm like, I'm sure it's happening. Um, I just don't know. Like, yeah, I don't know how often it's happening. I don't know. Like, how robustly it's happening and if it's going to affect policy, if it affects the training pipeline later down the line, like I'd like to think there's a feedback mechanism and I plan on asking some questions. Um, but yeah, man, like I, because it's not just nuclear, it's not a nuclear problem. Like it's definitely pronounced in your community, I I think, but good Lord, like, man, I could tell you it's everywhere. It's definitely, it's definitely a thing that has pervaded the entire like probably the entire force, I would say, if if not everywhere, like, I'm sure surface sailors probably could could tell us uh, could tell us stories about some of the things that are similar in their world too. Man, um, did we do we hit everything? Because my bladder's about to betray me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. The the last point I want to make about not being uh, good enough mm. is like a main driving point of I I mean as far as a new community goes it's definitely there I'm sure it's like we were just talking about it's everywhere in the fleet but my probably biggest overall gripe I have with the nuclear side of the Navy is that even if you do like let's say you do like a monitored evolution where you know you get some J.O. to come watch you do a clean inspect of some motor controller mm-hmm. and you do it all like perfect do the procedure perfect, no work controls issues, like everything goes great. At the end of it, they always have to make a comment to show improvement. <laughs> yeah. Which just kind of adds to the kind of like why why bother sort of mentality. You yeah. Know? Like why would I put in the amount of effort required to have this go absolutely flawless if at the end of it they're still going to say like, oh, well, you know, you're you were using a eight inch screwdriver instead of a five inch one, like the MRC says. Okay. <laughs> God. And me. that's, yeah, that's just, yeah. And that's just the thing that it, I mean, it's definitely a monitor does, but it goes all throughout like drills and everything. It's, it's just a constant, like, and people say like, you know, if you're not, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. Like I've heard that plenty of times, but yeah, at, at a certain point, it just, it would be nice to just be like, yeah, you guys killed that. Yeah. Moving on. Like, (laughs) right. And, and I don't like, I don't think that you lose much when it's true. Um, and and I think you can get around that in ways 
like kind of so when when you are operating at that level like so whatever the thing is like say we did a fire drill and we murdered it the all the response times were good extinguishing agents on the fire and like record time and like it's out and nothing spreads and it's awesome um the way that i i think you could get around that constructively is is you going into like so let's say like i'm Cobb, i go into the mestex and we're talking we're debriefing the drill and and i know that's not how that usually happens but it's whatever edmc or whoever and you're like you're like uh all right like honestly that was insane you guys crushed it i cannot find any issues what did you guys see because like the the second class that was on a nozzle probably saw something that that could have been done better or like they even though they were fast they could have been faster and here's why right like where you're saying like okay like i i don't got anything negative to say like what would you see out like what did you see on your hose what did you see as a rapid responder what did you see at the bcp like like what could could if anything like what did you see that we maybe could have done better because i'm like at a loss you know what i mean and you just go in because i think if the feedback is coming from those people versus me or the the person that's doing like a a spot check or a monitor dev or whatever that person who is expected to find a deficiency to the point that they invent one half the time because like i'm an inspector i go out on boats and it's like when i see somebody absolutely crushing it like yeah they're never going to be perfect the checklist is like five pages long with hundreds of items on it like you're never going to there's always going to be some comments, but I, I tell them, I'm like, dude, if you're taking a comment on a debulking log, which when I say that, most people don't even know what that means. Like if you're taking a comment on not having a debulking log, you're doing well. Like just, just like know yeah. that like if I'm, if I'm writing a comment down about a thing that you don't even, you have to look up, like you're, you're doing pretty well if the rest of the checklist goes well and everything's green when I debrief it. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, there's going to be a comment because no one's perfect, but don't take it as like me, like if I'm searching for stuff like, like, and, and I would write that down anyway, like, but if that's the, like you're taking comments like that and those are the only comments you're taking, like, dude, you're crushing it. And so I kind of look at it like that. Like when I go in and debrief, we, the way that we do it for the, the, uh, inspections we do is we'll go in and the only things we debrief are, are there'll be like significant findings is what we call them. And so like, I'll have a bunch of other comments, like contrary to this, like you didn't do that, but it's like a minor hit. And so it's just like, it's there for you to just know it exists. And it's like a go back and prove whatever. But the only thing I'm going to debrief, like the, the triad is the significant findings. And really what I say is the stuff I mark as significant findings is like the only thing the commanding officer cares about on the food service side of an SMI is uh, am I going to run out of food? Is the crew happy? And uh, am I, is anybody going to get sick? Like, because all of those things affect the mission and his ability to do the mission well. And that's it. That's all he cares about. He doesn't care about all the stupid admin stuff that we do and like inventory and like all the like, like he cares about endurance, like which inventory affects like inventory validity, right? He cares about his ability to keep the submarine at sea. Like, am I limited by food or not? is the crew going to be happy? Like, is the food quality good? Are we going to run out of anything important that may not limit the submarine's endurance, but will piss the crew off? And then like, is anybody going to get sick? Because if a whole watch section gets sick because they can't cook foods in a sanitary manner, like that obviously is going to affect the mission significantly. That's it. That's all he cares about. So that's what I debrief. And if you're doing all those, all three of those things, well, you're going to do well on the inspection. Like you're going to, like you're going to do like, there's a lot of admin stuff that affects it. And it's another story for another time, but it's uh, it, yeah, it's, 
if you if you approach it that way, where like if I'm debriefing that you guys are murdering your job and like I have no significant findings and there are some minor administrative things that need correcting and like uh, some other stuff, blah blah blah. But like by like you're an above standards operation that's doing incredibly well and with like just has some like minor things that we expect out of a human operation. Like that's basically a perfect inspection. Like you're not going to do better than that. No one is. Um, so going about it that way, like saying, look, I, you know, I couldn't find anything significant. Like, would you, would you guys all see while you're out there doing it? I think is probably the, how you fix that is like, and it, and it's, it could be done via a monitored evolution. If we allowed for that to happen, we'd have to build it into the mechanism where it's like the, the person doing the monitored evolution is like, look, like as far as me monitoring it, I thought it was perfect procedurally. Like everything went great. And then looking at you and going, what do you, cause I think everyone, I think everyone is more critical of what they did than I could ever be as a, as a bystander. You know what I mean? Like, uh, unless I'm yeah. the devil, you know, like <laughs> I, I, cause I'm really self-critical and I, I analyze myself a lot and I, I don't think anybody's going to ever like, judge me or like harshly like uh, characterize what I did and identify every single little tiny imperfection in it like I do. And I'm going to beat myself up over the fact that I allowed those things to happen and try to be better in the future, even though I know I'll never be perfect. And I don't think anybody, any outside observer is ever going to be be harsher on anyone than they are themselves when they, when those people want to do well, which I think is, basically a default setting for people it's like i don't think any sailors go into any situation wanting to suck um i think there are times where they they arrive at a place where they don't care anymore but i still don't think that it started that way you know like i don't think they ever arrive and and it's like hey i just want to be the worst person i can be so yeah i think that approaching it that way i think there's a lot of value to be had by doing it that way because like yeah i get it like we can always be better but it's like there's a point at which we've exceeded every metric and and accomplished every like objective of that evolution. And yes, sure, there's some efficiencies to be had because we're not perfect, but I don't have anything to say other than, oh, my God, you killed it. What did you see out there? Like, you know, what I mean, like if I've checked every box for you, like if we met every metric of the drill, we accomplished the things we crushed it. You know, what I mean, like and there was nothing procedural like like this like the maintenance item that you mentioned like the example you gave it's like so there's nothing negative to say there's no i didn't observe any deficiencies but we can always be better what did you see that's kind of when you transition from the me finding something negative that was contrary to to okay well like what could we have done better like what did you see because i didn't see anything procedurally wrong there were no deficiencies noted but there could always be like a okay look operator like what did, what can we do better and uh, what better person to ask yeah 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 i think that would be a lot smoother than you know you have to make a comment just to show improvement like, right like you said like you're just making stuff up yeah you and you are like my my brother-in-law gave this example of because i guess uh what he he's a civilian that works at the shipyard uh here and he he said um uh, i think it's NR, um, the dudes in, what are the, the dudes in, uh, civilian clothes that like come down to the boat. Is that just, they call yeah, it that, NR? That's NR. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So those guys, 
uh, comment and like analyze what his his shop does or whatever. Um, and he said like they'll come through and effectively do like a zone inspection to like make sure they're prepared to do a thing. And he said they'll like write down that the trash isn't taken out or something and it's because they have to have an efficiency and he's those guys are really good, good experienced at what they do and they're really good at it um so yeah they like like it'll be something ridiculous like that and he'll look and there'll be like three things that try it's like the trash isn't full it's not overflowing out of the floor like it's got like two things in it and then he's like and it, what's funny is they'll do the inspection and then like two days later uh they'll like when they're actually executing the evolution it's like the trash is full there's donuts all over the place like people are because they're going to be there for like 18 hours straight so it's like they're basically like camping like it's ridiculous there's stuff everywhere that they would have written down would have been a uh like significant comments on their little walkthrough but yeah it's it's i think it's just how we're programmed and i don't think it's efficient at all yeah it's definitely not um awesome let's the natural ending point i think for for this one dude i i, I think we could easily do another long one because i like i feel like there's a lot of stuff that i w- would want to ask you that we didn't get to because we were working through your side of it which was awesome yeah I'm glad we did it but um but for sure i think we could totally do another one um i appreciate yeah, I was trying you to keep this. it like new yeah. specific is just yeah. i'm sure you can tell my first boat was like just in such yeah. a dark place the whole time i was there it's hard not to get caught back at and stories about it well and that's what i mean like i want to get you caught back up with stories <laughs> so like we'll do that next time and talk through like some of the leadership stuff uh on that side of it because i think that'll be really fun too but this was awesome man thanks for doing it and thanks for your time yeah i, I appreciate it all right i hope you guys enjoyed that uh, i definitely did i think there will be another one where we get into uh, more leadership stuff because I, I didn't get to go down some of the rabbit holes I wanted to go down uh, because he wanted to get through uh, his stuff as well. And so I've got lots of questions I'd, I'd like to ask someone with his experience. Um, but yeah, I, I think you'll definitely see another one of those coming soon. Um, if you want to support us, go to dgusapparel.com. Uh, check that out. We're launching a new shirt and hoodie like today-ish <laughs> you it'll probably be up by the time this podcast drops on wednesday it's currently monday i believe as i'm editing this yeah monday so um it, it should be up by then so we'll have a new pride runs deep uh it's a sick shirt i'm really pumped about it the reaper on the back and uh you'll see you can see it on instagram right now the design anyway and then you'll see the shirt shortly thereafter uh popping up on social media and on the site but uh we're gonna get to a point where we're trying to do something for everybody i think i'm gonna attack a a BM shirt next for the business mates. I know I got a lot of buddies that are BMCs and, um, or have BM experience. So I, I'd like to get something done for them. And, and I'm going to keep going with everybody uh, as many communities and like rates and whatever that I can. Um, but yeah, check that out. Uh, buy something please. <laughs> and, uh, support us that way. There's a donate button on the site. You can click donate and, and support us in that way. That'll help us keep that goes directly to just bills for the podcast, for the subscription fees and everything else. Uh, or you can still go to dguspodcast.com slash shop and pick up some podcast stuff. There are podcast shirts on Dguts apparel as well, but you can like stickers, pins and all that other stuff. Eventually I'm going to transfer that all over to the Dguts apparel site just to streamline the whole thing. But um, but you can support us in all three of those ways and you can like, share, subscribe and review on all the platforms for all the things for podcasts and social media. The more you share and like and subscribe and review, uh, the more the podcast gets out there to the people that need it. So we appreciate that as well. And then if you need anything from us, hit us up. Don't give up the ship podcast at gmail.com. You can Facebook message us 
on don't give up the shit podcast or you can dm us on instagram or reddit or discord um looking at getting involved on something cool soon called the wisdom app uh if you're not aware of that check it out uh, paul king's very introduced me to that it's where you can do like live talks and then they would turn into a podcast later but it, it would be something where people could kind of jump in and ask questions live and stuff like that so um that's another thing that i signed up for at dgets podcast so check that out uh, i will advertise all over social media when i'm doing any talks on that app uh, so check that out as well um going forward I don't think I got any big announcements. I don't think so. I am going to get a little more active on some of the other platforms as time goes on. Uh, my retirement paperwork's going in for uh, October 2022. Um, so it'll probably be done just slightly before that. So you'll start to see me get a little more active on YouTube and uh, some of the other platforms um, as time goes on and probably start a Patreon and all that fun stuff too. So stay tuned for all the fun changes that are coming in the next year. And that's it. That's what I got for you today. Thank you so much for listening and don't give up the ship.